Welcome back to The Reeducation. In this episode, I look at when John Lennon stopped giving peace a chance and started hanging out with the Black Panthers. New York City, 1971. Free Angela. Free John Sinclair. Power to the people right on. How the most interesting Beatle got radical. My guest is Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large for Reason Magazine. Keep it locked. This is a good one. to help John and to spotlight what's going on, but also to show and to say to all of you that uh, apathy isn't it, and that we can do something. Okay, so flower power didn't work, so what? We start again. This song I wrote for John Sinclair. Well, that was John Winston Lennon on December 10th, 1971 at Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was the headliner, but he was not the only star. There was Allen Ginsberg. A young Bob Seeker. Living legend. Black Panther co-founder Bobby Seale. And Chicago 7 dissident Jerry Rubin. So we got to go back after this rally and not only free John Sinclair, but free the 200,000 black people in jail, free all the people in jail, defeat Nixon, really end the Vietnam War, end the sick system that poisons our stomachs with its lousy food, and build a revolutionary movement. Good night, Bernadine, wherever you are. Notice his sign-off there. Good night, Bernadine, wherever you are. Well, that would be Weather Underground leader Bernadine Dorn. Now, all of these people were in Ann Arbor to help free an eccentric polymath named John Sinclair. He was busted in 1970 for giving two joints to an undercover cop, and Judge Columbo gave him 10 years. They gave him 10 for two, as John Lennon sang in his Ode to Sinclair. They gave him 10 for two. What else can the bastards do? Now, it's not that surprising that John Lennon would lend his name and fame to the cause of legal weed. But John Sinclair was not your average dope smoker. He was also a poet. An amateur jazz musician, he published an underground newspaper or magazine, if you want to say that, called The Fifth Estate. Many know John Sinclair as the first manager of the pioneering proto-punk group, MC5, These Guys. Kick off the jails, motherfucker! Now, most important... John Sinclair was a co-founder and minister of information for the White Panther Party. And that's why I'm starting this episode about John Lennon with the concert to free John Sinclair, because the White Panthers were not giving peace a chance. They were leading the resistance. In 1969, the group placed some dynamite in front of a CIA recruitment office at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. 
Sinclair to this day insists that it wasn't him who placed the dynamite, but just because he didn't do it didn't mean he didn't dig it, so to speak. So here's John Sinclair, an interview from 2018, explaining that propaganda of the deed. So one of our goals as the White Panther Party was to uncover the CIA and their presence in our midst and their influence on things and what they meant really in terms of world domination by the United States. Consequently, these guys, somebody, blew up, put, put a couple of sticks of dynamite in front of the door of this office. When they went off, police and the news reporters would have to find out what was behind that door. And this really caused quite a great furor, for which we were very happy. So it's worth asking, what was John Lennon, a guy who only five years earlier wrote this song insisting that all we needed was love, doing at a rally to free one of the founders of the White Panthers? Well, it's a fascinating journey. And All You Need Is Love is probably the best place to start. The year when this song came out is 1967. You could say the Fab Four were the most dominant cultural force in the world. A few months earlier, the band gave the world Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And whatever you think of that album today, it pretty much blew everyone's mind back then. I mean, there's this famous story that Pink Floyd was touring around the English countryside and they first heard Pepper on the radio. They were so awed by the music that they just had to pull over and listen. It was that cosmically enormous. So All You Need Is Love, it was recorded in June of 1967, and it became almost immediately the anthem for what was known as the Summer of Love. And it was also the first song that was kind of recorded in live in studio. It was beamed, the first song to be beamed on a satellite to a global audience. And there was this great sound of singing along chorus that had all these young rock gods of the era, like Keith Moon, drummer for the Pooh, Eric Clapton, the overrated guitarist. And for more on this, I want to recommend a great podcast. It's pretty long, but it's from this guy, Andrew Hickey, and it's part of his series on a history of rock and roll in 500 songs. If you want to learn like every detail of All You Need Is Love, that's the place to go. I actually have to tell you, it's great stuff. I recommend it. But I start this episode with this bit of treacly optimism, although All You Need Is Love is technically a masterpiece in terms of uh, incorporating found audio and other songs and so forth. The lyrics are kind of, you know, bleh. Anyway, I start the episode with all of this because it stands in such stark contrast with where the 1960s and John Lennon himself were headed. I mean, can you imagine sitting down with Bobby Seale of the Black Panthers and telling him, love is all you need? Sure. That and firearms, money, and revolutionary discipline. Okay. You know, but this was 1967. The Panthers existed, but it was a year before everything unraveled. This was before... Gunman shot Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. It was before the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia. It was before the North Vietnamese Army launched the Tet Offensive. It was before the street battles in Chicago for the Democratic Convention. In 1967, hippies were strange but lovable. It was plausible to tell a middle-aged Frank Sinatra fan that there was nothing really to fear from all these long hairs running off to San Francisco putting flowers in the rifles of National Guardsmen. By 1968, that Sinatra fan much like Frank Sinatra himself, would become a Nixon voter. Now, one of the artists in the sing-along for All You Need Is Love from 1967, when everything was looking all rosy and wonderful, well, in that chorus was the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, a young Mick Jagger. Now, his presence on that television special is important because Jagger and the Stones would be remaking their image 
pretty seriously in 1968, and they would go from, you could say, flower power to street fighting men. So now it's the summer of 68, and to quote the song playing now, the time is right for fighting in the street. Mick, in particular, has taken a keen interest in the riots and protests of the summer. He participates, for example, in this march in London on the U.S. Embassy against the war in Vietnam. It was a wild scene. Among the throngs of marchers, they were carrying Soviet flags, visages of the Chinese tyrant Mao Zedong. And the demonstration, like so many in 1968, also got pretty ugly. Here's a snippet from a British cinematic newsreel on the protests where the presenter does a little bit of editorializing himself. There are those who complain that the police use undue violence. Others, more likely, compliment them on their restraint when faced with thugs, bullies, and flouters of the law. How can anyone ever hope to have pleas for peace seriously considered when their terms are so violently and wrongly presented? Okay, so if you were with the demonstrators... You could see how all you need is love at this point would sound like naive bullshit. And so let me illustrate this point and let's bring in French new wave film director Jean-Luc Godard. In 1968, he asked both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones if he could make a documentary about their recording process. And both bands, of course, said yes, because at the time Godard was like the hottest thing in the world. But Godard went with the Stones because Jean-Luc Godard was a real radical himself. And in his native France, he was electrified by the student and worker strikes and riots of 1968, which, you know, shut the country down for nearly two months that spring. Anyway, out of solidarity with the students and workers, Godard helped to shut down himself the Cannes Film Festival. Here's Godard in the moment. I know it's in French. It's only 15 seconds. Nos camarades étudiants nous ont donné l'exemple en se faisant casser la figure il y a une semaine. Il s'agit de manifester avec un retard d'une semaine et demie la solidarité du cinéma sur les mouvements étudiants et ouvriers. Qui... Okay, so Jean-Luc Godard later explains that he chose the Stones over the Beatles because the Beatles didn't participate in the march on the U.S. Embassy against the Vietnam War. He actually had the balls to attack the Beatles in the press in 68. Now, you can say Mick was out there demonstrating, and the Beatles were out there meditating with the Maharishi in India in 1968. And this was no longer the summer of love. If you get a chance, check out Godard's film, which came out in 69. It's called Sympathy for the Devil. It's some of the best kind of left-wing propaganda that I've ever seen, interspersed between great footage of the Stones recording Beggar's Banquet, one of their classics, there are these street scenes that Godard staged of radicals like spray painting revolutionary graffiti in London and black militants throwing each other rifles at a junkyard. And one of them points a rifle at the head of a white woman, forcing her to move along like a hostage. It's pretty crazy film. Anyway, here's Mick Jagger in this period gives an interview where he discusses this, so the clashes in London between the protesters and the English bobbies at the big anti-war demo. Quote, if we want to demonstrate, we have to meet them on their own ground. If they want to use horses, we'll have 10,000 people on horses. That's what it should have been. End of quote. Well, John Lennon saw things differently. Here's what he had to say in 1968. But if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't gonna make it with anyone Now, I think that line has aged pretty well, because in 1968, 
people were really carrying pictures of Chairman Mao. That's not a joke. In Oakland, for example, the Black Panther Party would raise money by selling Mao Zedong's Little Red Book at demonstrations on the UC Berkeley campus. And I want to play now a great report from Thames TV from 1968 on some of these Maoists and other radicals in the UK. This group, led by followers of Chairman Mao, decided on a confrontation with the Polytechnic's director. But even the true revolution sometimes loses its way when looking for the director of a polytechnic. Anyway, I love this scene. It's three very well-dressed students, who are themselves Maoists, trying to find their way to this poor bureaucrat's office in order to, you know, denounce him, or mal-mal him, as it were. And then getting lost in the building. It, all, it kind of reminds me of that great scene from Spinal Tap. Hello, Cleveland! Hello, Cleveland! Anyway, the three Maoists finally get to the guy's office, but he's not there. It's addressed to Richardson. I'll take it to Dr. Richardson, that's all. Well, we want to see Mr. Richardson. He'll be in in the morning. He's He's been into all this before. We haven't been into all this before. Yes, I'm here to to take this for him. We are here to give it to Richardson, and we would like you to send it to Richardson. Give it to me. You don't have... I'm not, I'm not interested in is it. Is there no member of the Board of Governors that is going to have the courage not. to come down here to receive it? Well? Give it to me and I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you now, then. I'm not going to listen to it. You're not going to listen to it? I'm not interested. Why? It's addressed to the Why? director. It's- Isn't that great? Okay. College students playing make-believe revolution is funny, even more than 50 years later. The actual cultural revolution in China? Not funny. It was horrifying. In 1966, Mao issues this edict against what he called the Four Olds, culture, customs, habits, and ideas, and he urged the Chinese youth to overthrow the middle-aged adults in charge of universities, bureaucracies, industries, etc. And they formed what are known as the Red Guards, and they went on a rampage for years. A million and a half Chinese people are estimated to have been killed in the Cultural Revolution, and millions more were in prison, beaten, tortured. It was terrible. I, just as a side note, Xi Jinping, the current Chinese tyrant, his parents were detained and tortured during the Cultural Revolution. It's something that's really an awful kind of wound on the nation of China. Okay, today, I think everybody, I hope, would understand how morally illiterate it was to carry pictures of Chairman Mao in the midst of the Cultural Revolution. We also have the benefit of hindsight to know that nothing really came of the Panthers and the Red Army faction in Europe and the Weather Underground and other radicals of the era. But to figure this out in the moment when basically revolution was the coolest thing in the world and bourgeois skepticism clearly was not, well, it's a testament, in my view, to Lenin's own good sense and kind of artistic integrity. Even though, as we will soon see, John Lennon would later regret what he was saying in that song, Revolution. Anyway, Godard was not the only culturati type who was disappointed in John Lennon. Tariq Ali, a Marxist agitator who helped to organize the march in London in 68, and also, by the way, the guy who the Stones initially wrote Street Fighting Man about, well, he would say in an interview that, quote, We've, we'd heard rumors that some of the Beatles were quite anti-war, but attempts to contact them failed and they never came on the demonstration, end of quote. Lennon would later kind of befriend Tariq Ali briefly, and he told him apparently that he regretted not showing up to the big anti-war rally. All right. Others were more upset about John Lennon's counter-revolutionary song, Revolution, as it were. 
Here is uh, John Hoyland, another 1968 Trotsky lover, wrote an open letter in Tariq Ali's underground magazine at the time known as the Black Dwarf, denouncing Lenin's revolution, comparing it to a popular woman's radio show on the BBC called Mrs. Dale's Diary. All right, now I love this. You know, everybody at this moment is writing about the Beatles, and Lenin decides that he's got to respond to this slander in the Black Dwarf. So he writes in what he calls a very open letter, end of quote, isn't this great? He writes, Dear John, this is to John Hoyland, your letter didn't just sound patronizing. It was. Who do you think you are? What do you think you know? I don't remember saying revolution was revolutionary. Fuck Mrs. Dale. Love John Lennon. P.S. You smash it and I'll build around it, end of quote. Love John Lennon. Along those same lines, I just want to play here a snippet of an interview that Lennon did with two British high school students at the end of 1968, where he's kind of sticking to his guns on the skepticism of the revolution. What can they do? All I'm saying is I think you should do it by changing people's heads. And they're saying, well, we should smash the system. Now, the system smashing scene's been going on forever, you know. They've been, you know, what's it done, you know? The Irish did it, and the Russians did it, and the French did it. And where's it gone? Okay, so it should be said here that in this period, you know, Lenin was going through some trials. He was addicted to heroin. And on the good side, he was also madly in love with Yoko Ono. There is a baby boomer cliche that Yoko broke up the Beatles. Her art was too gimmicky. She put Lenin under her spell, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's crap. John Lennon broke up the Beatles. Okay. This really kind of takes away from Yoko Ono, who was a serious contemporary artist and is still really highly regarded to this day. You know, so she's like a kind of a figure in her own right and just sort of sees her as this like, you know, extension of Lennon, which is not cool. And as we'll soon see, I think he ended up making terrific music with Yoko, both collaborating with her and also having her kind of be this inspiration for him that I don't think he would have been able to make if he stayed in the Beatles. And more important, I think this narrative really takes away John Lennon's own agency. Because it's clear that before Yoko Ono really became part of his life, which, you know, they kind of finally got together for real romantically in 1968, I would say that Lennon's personal life was empty. John Lennon was miserable. Now, I want to read now from a profile of John Lennon by Maureen Cleave for the Evening Standard from March 4th, 1966. Astute Beatles experts and watchers will recognize that this is the interview where John said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Again, Andrew Hickey's great podcast goes into incredible detail on all of this. I am not going to touch that right now because there's only so much time and I'm trying to focus on John Lennon's radicalism. But I do want to read this really revealing passage that captures a 25-year-old John Lennon at his suburban home, surrounded by possessions, utterly bored, despondent. Quote, One feels that his possessions, to which he adds daily, have got the upper hand. All the tape recorders, the five television sets, the cars, the telephones, of which he knows not a single number. The moment he approaches a switch, it fuses. Six of the winking boxes guaranteed to last till next Christmas have gone funny already. His cars, the Rolls, the Mini Cooper, black wheels, black windows, the Ferrari being painted black, puzzle him. Then there's the swimming pool, the trees sloping away beneath it. Nothing like what I ordered, he said resignedly. He wanted the bottom to be a mirror, it's an amazing household, he said. None of my gadgets really work except the gorilla suit. That's the only suit that fits me, end of quote. Anyway, so this is the John Lennon who walks into the Indica Gallery in London in 1966, where Yoko has a show. And I, I don't want to let 
John, take it from here. So anyway, I finally got to this show, and uh, she had all these things on, like all these like hammer nail things, and and that clock there. You listen to it to a st stethoscope, all the things. And at first, I reacted like uh, like a mug, you know, like the ones that they were saying they don't get a badge, you know. I think, ah, haha, don't fool me with all this junk, you know. So then uh, there was this ladder and a thing on the ceiling. So I climbed the ladder, and on the ceiling it said, yes. You see, so I thought, oh, I agreed then. It's okay, you know. So you can see, John Lennon was intrigued. And Yoko was, I think, a little intrigued. And she gave him a copy of her book, Grapefruit. And after reading it, I think that you could say that John Lennon was sort of smitten. Something clicked for the art school dropout. But it did not become this full partnership for another two years. So Lennon and Yoko were friends before they were lovers. Then one night in May of 1968, Yoko came to his home in Surrey and they spent the evening playing around with his recording equipment, making what you might say call avant-garde music. And, and in the morning, they made love. Right. At this point, Lennon, you know, fuses with Yoko almost. It became like kind of like one person for the next few years at least. And we know some of this. She's a ubiquitous presence during the Get Back sessions, which eventually became Let It Be. You should check out the Peter Jackson documentary that uses a lot of this footage. And it was released about a year and a half ago. Lennon and Yoko in this period also release three records on their own between like late 1968 and 1969. And I have to say, this is how you know that John is just 100% artist because all of these albums are really hard to listen to. They're experimental. And you know, it's an example of somebody who kind of becomes famous by being an entertainer and giving his many fans what they needed and demanded. And now he's demanding that his audience will meet him where he is. And that's the opposite of that entertainer that the Beatles were in the early 60s. Okay, anyway, for the first of these albums of what the couple was calling unfinished music, the cover was supposed to be a photo of John and Yoko in the nude, full frontal. The label being 1968, EMI, they balked. And so they distributed this record in a brown paper bag. I keep trying to imagine, by the way, like your Beatles fan in 68, 69, going to a record store, you know, asking for this new John Lennon record, getting home, putting it on, and then hearing this. It's not exactly, she loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, in this period, Yoko and John's relationship itself becomes a kind of performance art. The song we're listening to now, The Ballad of John and Yoko, went to number one for the Beatles. And it's worth tracking down the video on YouTube because it's a lot of home movie shots, but it corresponds with the, you know, real-life lyrics of the song. The newspaper said it, say what you're doing in bed. I said we're only trying to get us some peace, Christ, you know. That was a reference to John and Yoko's Bedin, a campaign in 1969 to end the Vietnam War by convincing people, fighting it, that they should stay in bed. It was wildly idealistic. John paid for posters and handbills, billboards in all these major cities all over Europe and the United States that said, war is over, and in smaller writing in parentheses, if you want it. Here's John speaking from the bed-in about giving various diplomats acorns. We've got some acorns with us that we hope to give to all the heads of state we can get to see everywhere. What do the acorns signify? They're symbolic of seed, which is symbolic of life, you know. And we'd like the presidents of different places to plant the seeds as a positive move towards peace instead of just shaking hands on photographs 
I'm talking about talks, about talks, about talks, about talks they're going to have about peace. I think they might think I'm going to uh, hot up the revolution. You know, I want to cool it down. And I should say, it was not just the bed, and that's the most famous thing that they, John and Yoko did that was kind of performance art, but, you know, they, they did something that they called anti-bagism, where they held a press conference, and they were both in covered in these kind of like plastic bags, and they would, they, you know, reporters would ask them questions, and they would answer, and they would just sort of be under these bags. It, it's wild stuff. Okay. Now, if you evaluate the bed in purely as a kind of a political campaign, then I agree. It is hopelessly naive. But maybe you should think about this as itself kind of performance art. It's in, in that sense, it's kind of great. Anyway, that tension about like, is this like, are you now a politician? Are you still an artist? Like, what's going on here? And I think John loved, and Yoko, they think they loved sort of straddling that line and being ambiguous about it. I think the tension is exposed brilliantly in this, uh, in this clip where John is kind of arguing with a New York Times reporter. If I'm going to get on the front page, I might as well get on the front page with the word peace. But you've made yourself ridiculous. To some people, I don't care. If it, you're co- too good for if it what saves you're doing. lives... You don't think you... Oh, my dear boy, you're living in a nether nether. Well, uh, you talked to... You that. don't think you saved a single life. Okay. Now, there's two other things that are happening right now in John's world that's, I think, important. Now we're talking like 69, 70... 71. The first thing we have to mention this, you could do a whole show on this, by the way, is John Lennon discovers, and John and Yoko, I should say, discover the work of this psychologist named Arthur Yanoff, or Janoff. And this is a guy who developed something called primal scream therapy, where the patient is supposed to expel their repression through intense sessions of, well, you know, primal screaming, where you are supposed to be kind of reduced to your childhood. And in some cases, even you know, trying to remember in some ways the painful experience of coming out of the womb. This is, uh, well, it's it's the late 60s. This is, this is all the rage at the time. And it's clear, whatever you think of it, it sounds gimmicky to me when I was reading about it and learning about this, but it's clear that it really helped John Lennon because he quit heroin and because I think in part because of the primal scream therapy. And he he recorded this great album called The Plastic Ono Band. I highly recommend it. It's probably one of my favorite records, you know, of the 70s and the 60s. Okay, now, the second big thing that Lennon's does that's sort of influencing him in this period is that he moves from London to New York City in August of 1971. <laughs> In London, Lennon lives in this palatial estate with its own pond and like beautiful grounds. It's gorgeous. I guess it's on the suburbs of London. He would receive visitors like a king almost. I mean, and in some ways you think they'd be very happy, but they were not happy. And this is in part because the British press are terrible. They were, were racist and mean to Yoko. They kept blaming Yoko for breaking up the Beatles and they were nasty to her. They called her ugly. It was really bad. So John and Yoko in this period, they saw New York as an opportunity to live under less of a microscope, even though, I mean, they're they're super world famous, you know, celebrities, but they kind of felt that they could get, you know, something of a normal life in New York. And, you know, when they first get to New York, they moved to this, you know, small two bedroom flat on Bank Street in Greenwich Village. So it's important here to understand that the New York that Lennon travels to in 1971, and it becomes part of in this period of the early 70s, well, it's a fascinating place. It's a New York that is becoming dysfunctional. Crime is on the rise. Corruption is rampant. 
1975, President Gerald Ford famously rejects a bailout request from New York City. I mean, there's like garbage in the streets. It's it's a rough time. It's creatively amazing, but it's a it's kind of a gritty, dangerous, dirty place in this period. And for the super elite in the late 60s and early 70s, New York is also ground zero for what became known as radical chic. That's a concept from one of my favorite writers, Tom Wolfe. And he coins the phrase in his classic New York Magazine essay called Radical Chic, describes how these New York City social elites, socialites, you know, the, the, the upper crust of the upper crust, they were embracing well, what we call the new left. And they were embracing the new left as a kind of fashion statement. So, you know, it's a very useful concept because we see it even today. Think of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at the Met Gala in 2021 wearing a, a dress that said tax the rich at a party with some of the richest people where like all of the, this is in the middle of COVID, I, but if you remember the scene, you know, AOC is beaming in this cool dress while all of the people who are like serving hors d'oeuvres at the party have to wear masks and stuff like that. Or think about the George Soros foundations that fund pressure groups that try to eliminate cash bail and pursue what is known as decarceration. That is a, a kind of a, a version of radical chic. Okay, anyway, radical chic, that was the rage in New York that Lenin encounters in 1971. And some of the best dresses in Manhattan were hosting these fundraisers and parties for the Black Panthers, a Bronx gang known as the Young Lords, Cesar Chavez's farm workers, and on it goes. In the essay, Wolf really revels in the dissonance between kind of the revolutionaries and the elites all, you know, rubbing elbows in the same social space. You know, basically, it's like a lot of them were almost masochistically demanding to be abraded for their privilege. And Wolf is such a great writer because he captures all these details so well from the dilemma of millionaire radicals trying to find white servants when they host the planters, very important, to the delicious Roquefort cheese balls rolled in nuts passed out on silver trays. So I want to read just a small passage of this. It's a confrontation between a young Barbara Walters, who's already kind of on television, she's already the host of the Today Show, and a Panther field marshal named Al Cox. This is at the apartment of the great conductor of the New York Philharmonic, Leonard Bernstein, which the essay is really, he's the main character of. And anyway, here's Wolf, and in this passage, he's, it starts off quoting Barbara Walters. Quote, I'm a member of the news media, but I'm here as an individual because I'm concerned about the questions raised here. And there's been a lot of talk about the media. Last year, we interviewed Mrs. Eldridge Cleaver, Kathleen Cleaver, and it was not an edited report or anything of that sort. She had a chance to say whatever she wanted, and this is a very knowledgeable, very brilliant, very articulate woman. And I asked her, I said, I have a child, you have a child. And I said, do you see any possibility that our children will be able to grow up and live side by side in peace and harmony? And she said, not with the conditions that prevail in the society today, not without the overturn of the system. So I asked her, how do you feel as a mother about the prospect of your child being in that kind of confrontation, a nation in flames? And she said, let it burn. And I said, what about your own child? And she said, may he light the first match. And that's what I want to ask you about. I'm still here as a concerned person, not as a reporter, but what I'm talking about and what Mr. Bernstein and Mr. Otto Preminger are talking about when they ask you about the way you refer to capitalism is whether you see any chance at all for a peaceful solution to these problems, some way out without violence. Cox says, not with the present system. I can't see that. Like what can change? 750 families that own all the wealth in this country, end quote. Isn't that just delicious? You know, Tom Wolfe is such a great writer. So I took this detour in the monologue about Tom Wolfe because it really captures in some ways where Lenin is at. Because we should say, John Lennon grows up a little bit better than working class. 
in Liverpool, but he has a tragic childhood. You know, he, he's by no means wealthy. You know, his father abandoned him. His mother, he's living mainly with his aunt Mimi, who's kind of strict. And, you know, at the at one point when his mother does visit him, when she's back in his life, when he's a teenager, you know, she she dies in a horrible car accident. Lennon points out in later interviews where, you know, an off-duty cop kind of runs her over. So, you know, he's, he can understand he's, I don't want to say that he, certainly Lennon is not born into privilege. But by this point, 1971, 1972, John Lennon is a gazillionaire, and he's not only famous, he's got a lot of money, and pretty much live and do whatever he wants. So it's interesting how in this period, he's kind of like hooking up with the radicals. And so, you know, anyway, it starts in London, because he's hanging out with Marxists like Tariq Ali. And in New York, he hooks up with Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, who were part of the Chicago 7, as they were arrested and tried for the disruptions and the street demonstrations, street theater of the 1968 Democratic Convention. Here's Yoko from a great 2010 documentary that's about John Lennon in New York, talking about how Jerry and Abby were the first people that John and Yoko hooked up with after moving across the Atlantic. When we came to New York, the first people we got in touch with was Abby Hoffman and uh, Jerry Rubin. When we were in London every night, we were watching TV. <laughs> and uh, we saw uh, Abby and Jerry doing their thing in Chicago, uh, Chicago 7 doing their thing in front of the judge, you know. Okay, for some observers, this was Lennon falling under the sway of very clever radicals. I mean, here's a snip from another documentary called U.S. vs. John Lennon. The first voice is Geraldo Rivera, who covered John and Yoko as a young TV journalist in the city. And the second voice is... Watergate burglar and former FBI man, G. Gordon Liddy. When they met Hoffman and Rubin, they were absolutely instruments in the hands of two political masters. When John and Yoko came, you know, da-da-da-da, give peace a chance, they went, then I am, now I have another weapon to use against the state. The knife lying on a table is not a threat to anybody. It requires human responsible agency to take the knife and use it to cut somebody's throat. He would be looked upon as a tool. In this instance, he was being manipulated in a way that harmed the effort of the United States to win the war in Vietnam. All right. So I play that to kind of give this somewhat conventional wisdom perspective that, you know, John Lennon kind of got in the wrong crowd. And, you know, what do you know? He starts adopting their positions. I think it's important to give a little context. I don't think that's exactly right. John Lennon was, in my view, not a marionette. He was a voracious reader himself. And, you know, like great artists, he would throw himself into new ideas, into new scenes, into new people. And when he did that, he would throw himself entirely into that. So in 1971, Lenin threw himself into radical politics. But I think he always, in some ways, he approached it as an artist. In a sense, he was a cipher. He was channeling what might be said as the spirit of his age, the zeitgeist of 1971-1972. And even when he was associating with these activists, he would also grow frustrated at times. In 1970, for example, in one of my favorite songs of Lenin's called I Found Out, the first verse, and I'll play it here, is a sneer at all these Marxists trying to get him to endorse their cause or play at their event. I told you Now, that said, by the time that Lenin gets to New York, he was no longer that, like, 
heroic skeptic of 68 and the Song Revolution. He had chosen a side. And here he is in 1971 on the Dick Cavett Show. I want to play two clips here. The first one is Lenin retconning his 68 masterpiece, Revolution, and saying that he now regrets that line about Chairman Mao. The thing I regret was making a reference to Chairman Mao, which might spoil any chances I have of going to visit China, like those ping pong people do. I'd love to go and see what's happening there. And, but I wrote the Chairman Mao line in the studio because I didn't have any words. What I was trying to say to the Maoists or anybody that wanted to change the world, why go and stand in front of a policeman with a red communist flag in your hand and a big suit and all like that and then get hit? I thought it was unsubtle. So in the song, I wasn't putting down revolution. I was saying, isn't that a bit unsubtle? But if you want to really change the thing, do it subtly in a way that the establishment can't attack, i.e. Th theater in court and or bed events to virgins things like that, things that the establishment don't understand, therefore they can't kill it. Right. All right, now this clip is Lenin's response to a member of the audience that asks about a recent article in the radical journal Ramparts that claimed that John Lennon was now in favor of violent revolution. That's yeah. what it stated. No, the article in Ramparts was, uh, was uh, basically so about uh, socialism, right? And uh, I don't believe in violent revolution. I, Yoko stated it very well, which is, uh, violent revolutionaries are playing the same establishment game. I believe in uh, some of the things Jerry Rubin and A.B. Hoffman have done, like the theatre in court kind of revolution. I believe in the, the revolution of happening and that artists, Yoko says artists don't create. A woman, any woman can create, a man can destroy with a Coke bottle, and an artist revalues. If I'm a revolutionary, or we are revolutionaries, we're revolutionary artists, not gunmen. I believe in the Black Panther original statement, the 10-point program, which is not violent, which says uh, to defend yourself against attack, I might consider that, mm. but I, uh, anything else I don't consider. So I'm still for peace, peaceful revolutionary, but I'm an artist first and a politician second. Okay, so this one is really worth unpacking. On the one hand, it's good that Lenin keeps making clear that he's for nonviolent revolution. Okay, that's good. But when he says that he supports the original Black Panther's 10-point plan, well, I'm flummoxed because I realize today the Black Panthers are valorized for their community breakfast programs and such, but that's really, like, not the full story. And their original ideas, this 10-point plan from 1966 that Lenin refers to, it's a document that advocates for full racialized justice, meaning no Black person should be tried by a jury that isn't all Black, that kind of thing. It advocates for the taking of, of property of white people, as well as a stirring defense of the Second Amendment, an irony given the current view of progressives on gun rights. So here's a quote from point two of the 10-point plan. I just want to read this here. Quote, we believe that if the white American businessmen will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessmen and placed in the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its people and give a high standard of living, end quote. Fidel Castro could not have said it better, no? All right, just to make this point, I want to play now a clip from Eldridge Cleaver. He's the former Minister of Information for the Black Panthers, and this is 1968 on William F. Buckley's Great Firing Line show. I should say, Cleaver would later split from the Black Panthers in 1971 in a disagreement with Huey Newton on the question of armed struggle. Cleaver wanted more violence, Newton did not, and Cleaver would kind of escape to Algeria, where he would live for a few years in exile. You're quoted as having said to the Barristers Club at San Francisco, quote, I hope you will take your guns and shoot judges and police. The Washington Post, which is a liberal newspaper, 
uh, describing the Black Panther newspaper as uh, published uh, in uh, here just uh, a month or so after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, which ran a drawing of Kennedy as a dead pig, photos of his Negro bodyguard described uh, as, quote, LBJ bootlickers, and a flattering portrait of Sihan Sihan. Now, it doesn't surprise you that this should attract public notice, does it? No, because when we pu publish our paper, uh, we hope that it will attract public notice. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the reason we first put the paper out in the first place is because we knew that people were interested in that. Yeah. So we're not surprised that uh, that's true. Okay, so I bring this up in relation to John Lennon because eventually this new radicalism begins to influence his music as well. John Lennon did write other political songs. I mean, there is a great song on his Imagine album where it's called Power to the People, and that's a, that's a very political song. And, you know, the song Imagine itself, some people might say, is political. I realize a lot of people really like that song, and they consider it, you know, his greatest song. It's this peace anthem. The view of the re-education with Eli Lake is that the song Imagine is a pernicious little ballad. Imagine no possessions, no religion, no countries. Some people may call that utopia. I would call that Jonestown. The other point is that the song is so abstract, much like Power to the People, it's, it's not really a threat to anybody. John Lennon is sort of just, he's sharing this goofy theory about a world without borders. Who cares? I know a lot of people love it, but I don't think Imagine or Give Peace a Chance or that kind of thing is going to change the world. Okay, now let's contrast that with Sometime in New York City. This is a double album. It comes out in 1972. It is by both John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and the critics at the time didn't understand it. They kind of hated it. Part of it was that there was a delayed release. Some of the songs, which were very current about politics, were a little bit overtaken by events. But that doesn't matter. It's, it's, I, I still think the music stands on its own. My view is that I completely disagree with it. You know I'm big separate the artist from the art guy. But I think like musically it's really brilliant and a super interesting thing to like check out 51 years later. And I should say, unlike Imagine, John is here getting very, very specific with his politics. And the gloves are off. A bit of this sounds like, I don't know, the Weather Underground was performing with the Saturday Night Live house band. Take the song, Woman is the N-word of the world. I'm not going to say it, but, and this clip will not have it. Here's a, here's a little clip. Okay, that song was based on a quote that Yoko gave a few years earlier. And believe it or not, John and Yoko actually played that song on Dick Cavett's show in 1972. N-word and all. And this is just, a, it's kind of interesting because this is how ABC, the network, handled it at the time. Here's Cavett explaining all of this kind of a little bit after the fact. Will you welcome, please, John and, and Yoko Flanagan. I had John and Yoko on in the suit said, we're going to write a little insert just before the song for you to say. I said, you are going to censor my guests after I get them on the show? This is ludicrous. John and Yoko got into something which ABC feels may develop into, in their words, a highly controversial issue. So they wrote this thing, and I went in and taped it in order to retain the song. In the next segment, John Lennon gives his reasons for writing the song and for using the word. Okay. I should say, in that next segment where Lennon talks about that song, Woman is the N-Word of the World, he reads a statement of support from Ron Dellums, the leader of the Congressional Black 
caucus about the song and Dellums's point is like hey it's you know good there's a lot of people who are oppressed and if you want to say they're all n-words that's okay just a different era is all i'm saying it was controversial but at the same time you know it was not controversial enough that you couldn't play it on the dick cabot show okay now i think john is at his most radical on two tracks that he has on this record about the struggle for irish independence now this is influenced by a massacre in londonbury in Northern Ireland, known as Sunday Bloody Sunday. And please do not bring up the U2 song, which is, in my view, second rate. Okay. In 1972, British paratroopers killed 14 demonstrators. You know, it was a terrible day. I should say it's in the context of a bitter conflict, which saw a wave of bombings throughout the United Kingdom from the IRA in the late 60s and 70s. So, you know, it was a, it was a very live matter. And, you know, in this period, a lot of British rock stars would support the Irish Republican cause. It was something that the left was into. And that's, I guess, okay. But here's the thing. John Lennon is coming very, very close to more than just supporting, like, hey, I think Ireland should be free. John's coming very close to supporting, like, Irish terrorism or IRA terrorism in his home country, where he is still a citizen of the United Kingdom. All right, so let me give a little side-by-side comparison to explain the difference in, you know, how rock stars in 1972 would express solidarity with the Irish Republicans. Here is Paul McCartney, also inspired by Bloody Sunday, also in 1972. And this is Paul's song. It's called Give Ireland Back to the Irish. Great Britain, you are tremendous. Well, that's fairly polite, is it not? Great Brit, you are tremendous. But really, what do you do in Ireland? That sums up Paul McCartney in that song. Anyway, later in the song, he will ask, you know, if British citizens would like it if they had to stop at checkpoints manned by Irish shoulders. Okay. But it's basically saying, come on, guys, you're better than this. All right. Let's just say Lennon's going for something a bit different. In case you missed that, Lenin is calling his own country's military Anglo pigs and Scotties. You get that line, keep Ireland for the Irish, put the English out to sea. Okay. As I said, that's cutting awfully close to just basically supporting IRA bombings. All right. John and Yoko do not just stop there on the question of Northern Ireland. They, they have a song that's in solidarity with the prison riots and uprising in Attica Prison, which was a big cause in the early 70s. And it's one of my favorite tracks on the album. It's called Attica State. Here's a little snip. We already played his song for John Sinclair. And then I, you know, this section of the monologue would not be complete if we did not talk for a little bit about the song Angela. Shut down your mouth. 
this is, of course, about Angela Davis. And the question is, who is Angela Davis? Well, here she is in 1979 receiving the Lenin Prize, that's L-E-N-I-N, in Moscow. Dear comrades of the International Lenin Peace Prize Committee, comrades and friends, Уважаемые товарищи из Комитета по международным ленинским премиям за укрепление мира между народами, товарищи и друзья. As I come forth to receive this esteemed peace prize bearing the glorious name of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin here on the very soil where he led the great October Revolution. Okay, when John and Yoko sang their earnest ode to Angela, or at least when they wrote it, I should say, she was indeed in prison, but she was no political prisoner in the sense that we would say someone like Andrei Sakharov or Solzhenitsyn, the great physicist who was in the gulag in the Soviet Union, was a political prisoner. And it's an insult to, I don't know, freedom to compare Angela Davis to a Sakharov or a Solzhenitsyn. Now, the reason that Davis was in prison is because of another felon named George Jackson. He became radical chic cause celebre in 1970 after his book of like letters called Soledad Brother, which is Soledad was the prison that he was in, was published. And in it, he endorses international Marxism and described, you know, truly horrific conditions. 1970 prisons in California were horrible. And Jackson and Davis became lovers. And in Davis, in turn, the cause of trying to free George Jackson. Anyway, this is where the story becomes really tragic because Jackson has a brother who, you know, at age 17, named Jonathan Jackson, attempted a daring and violent kind of plot to free George by taking hostages at the Marin County Courthouse. This is from a documentary on the incident from a few years back called The Year of the Gun. I'm just going to play a, a clip from it now. On the morning of August 7th, 1970, at approximately 10.45 a.m., Jonathan Jackson walked into the Marin County courtroom of Judge Harold Haley. Within moments, Jonathan pulled out a pistol, carbine, and a 12-gauge shotgun. He announced that he was taking over, adding, this is it, everybody freeze. Weapons were given to inmates James McLean, William Christmas, and Rochelle McGee. As Judge Haley Assistant District Attorney Gary Thomas and three housewives who were serving as jurors were taken hostage. The gunman also stated, We are the revolutionaries. The Soledad brothers must be freed. Taped under the neck of the 65-year-old judge was a shotgun. Okay, so how is Angela Davis mixed up in all of this? Well, she purchased the guns that Jonathan Jackson brought into the courtroom that day. And I want to read now from Brian Barrow's superb book, everyone should read this, called Days of Rage, on this point. Quote, Jonathan became obsessed with the Soledad brothers' case. He regularly visited George and attended his hearings. George, in turn, assigned Jonathan to be Angela Davis's bodyguard. It was Angela who gave Jonathan his first gun, a 380 caliber Browning with a 13-round clip. On August 5, 1970, after a long visit with George, she brought him another, a shotgun, at a San Francisco pawn shop. Whether a conspiracy was afoot to help George escape from prison would never be proven. End of quote. So the whole thing ends in disaster. One of the hostage takers couldn't figure out how to operate the van that was waiting for the hostages and the assailants. And this delay gave time for both the police and San Quentin guards to surround the area. They fired on the van. Jonathan Jackson was wounded. He pulled the trigger and shot the gun that was taped to Judge Haley's face. 
Anyway, so naturally at this point, the authorities wanted to find Angela Davis, who they quickly learned had purchased the guns that had been used to kill Judge Haley and others in this horrible incident. And what did she do? Well, she fled. So two months later, the law caught up to her in New York City, where she was living at a Howard Johnson's in Manhattan. As for George Jackson, he was killed in 1971 during an attempted escape after someone slipped him a handgun. Here is Barrows again, quote, on August 21st, 1971, with his trial already underway, someone, almost certainly one of Jackson's attorney, managed to slip him a gun. He used it to take over San Quentin's internal detention block. As he did, witnesses later reported, he repeatedly shouted, the dragon has come, the dragon has come. Six guards and two white prisoners were taken hostage. Five were later found dead in Jackson's cell, their throats slit. Jackson later bolted into the prison yard, where snipers immediately killed him with a single shot to the back. Six men were dead. It was the bloodiest day in the history of the California prison system. Okay, so while all of this is happening, the radical chic in New York, London, San Francisco, and L.A., they all consider Davis as a, as a political prisoner, and they consider George Jackson to be a martyr. The argument, of course, in my view, was uh, goofy. It was straight out of the Black Panther 10-point plan. I mean, the argument was that unless Davis was tried by a black jury of her peers, the trial would be considered illegitimate. And there was a lot of kind of theater around that, I should say, or you know, political speechifying and so forth. Well, this is a surprise, I think, despite the fact that Angela Davis purchased the guns that Jackson used to kill Judge Haley and others, despite the fact that she fled when summoned to the court, the jury, an all-white jury, I might add, acquitted her of her crimes. According to a New York Times story, Davis broke into tears upon hearing the verdict, exclaiming in the courtroom, this is the happiest day of my life. All right, so this has marked the end to the revolutionary period in some ways for John Lennon around this time. He became ensnarled in a nasty fight with the Justice Department on his visa status, you know, U.S. government wanted to deport him because of a drug arrest back when he was in London. And he was also targeted and surveilled by the FBI at this time because of mainly his associations with radicals like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. There was this idea that Rubin and Hoffman and a few others had that Lennon should headline a major concert in Miami in 1972 that would encourage young people to vote. This is the year that there was a constitutional amendment that lowered the voting age to 18 and it was seen that Lenin could, you know, really do great things in terms of voter registration and helping to defeat Nixon. Lenin, according to sort of private FBI surveillance that came out many years later, kind of like cooled on this idea because he wanted the activists to promise him that there would be no violence. Good for John Lennon there, by the way. Anyway, eventually Lenin prevailed in the immigration fight. But, you know, 1972 was a rough year for him. I mean, sometime in New York City, in my view, unfairly panned by critics, but it didn't do well commercially, and Richard Nixon cruised to a landslide victory that year in 1972. Anyway, here's a great part of that documentary that I clipped earlier on Lennon's time in New York, and I want to just play this. This is Yoko describing what happened on election night in 1972. So by the time that we were in the car to go to Jerry Rubin's party, Joe was swaying. And I think, you know, what happened there, I totally understand. You know, that he just uh, just pulled one girl and went into the next room and started um, started to make love, I suppose. And there's big noise and everything. And um, and one of the uh, elephant's memory guys, Stan, Stan was very sweet. He just put Bob Dylan's record on and sort of boosted up. But it just didn't do any good. Oh. 
Lennon had a lot of demons. And this began what he would euphemistically call his long weekend. It's actually 18 months, and it was when Lennon and his assistant, a woman named Mei Pang, went to Los Angeles. And Lennon was mainly, in this period, a drunken bastard. But he would also occasionally jam with his pals, and he recorded some pretty good records, too. But it was like this 18-month period he was away from Yoko. And over time, I should say that John, Yoko, and the other radicals that they hung out with in 72 kind of mellowed. Angela Davis would go on to become a tenured radical, teaching at Brandeis University. Today, she is celebrated by American progressives. And after the trial in 1972, you know, she would still, like, visit Moscow. I played that clip of her getting the Lenin Prize. And, you know, she'd make fiery speeches, but her revolutionary days were mainly over. Jerry Rubin became an entrepreneur and a stockbroker, of all things. He would eventually move to L.A. and sell health drinks. At one point, Bobby Seale was a salesman working for Rubin. Bobby Seale also put out a line of barbecue sauces. Eldridge Cleaver came back from exile in Algeria, and he became a born-again Christian. He also became a Republican, and he ran for Senate in, like, 1984. Here he is in an interview with Charlie Rose. I want to play this because it's extraordinary to kind of compare this to the Eldridge Cleaver we saw on the, on the Buckley's firing line. What do you say to those, and you have heard this question for the last 10 years, who look at you now in a three-piece suit and a nice tie and glasses over there and, and a little bit of uh, gray in the hair, and they say, Eldridge Cleaver, born-again Christian, Republican, Reagan supporter, what happened? Where was the road to Damascus that had you converted? Well, the entire situation in the United States has changed uh, tremendously. Uh, we were on the outside banging on the door of America to get in in the 60s, and consequently our attitude was quite uproarious. But uh, once the doors were open and we are inside, it calls for a change in your attitude. But spiritually, uh, I underwent a change as well as ideologically. Uh, becoming a father twice over, I think it uh, had the impact of making me uh, take a, a larger view of uh, life and to realize that the materialist uh, interpretation of uh, life uh, was not uh, sufficient. And so I had a spiritual uh, change in my life. And John and Yoko eventually did get back together. And on August 9th, 1975, they had Sean Taro Ono, Lennon. He was also John's birthday. So he shared a birthday with his son. So John took some time off at that point from music and politics for like five years, 75, and just kind of enjoyed being a dad. And, you know, there, there are interviews. I, this has been so long, I'm not going to play them right now. But there's interviews where he just talks about how fun it is, hang out with his son, you know, where they get haagen ice cream together and stuff like that. And uh, you can tell that he's just, he's found peace and I'm very happy. It's, a, it's like a nice part of Lennon's life. And then sadly, he was murdered by a lunatic, Mark David Chapman. I don't want to kind of dwell on it. We all know what happened at the end of 1980. And, well, it's kind of sad. So here's a postscript. In 1986, Yoko published a manuscript that John had been working on. That was, you know, part musings and part autobiography. Anyway, in a section entitled, We'd All Love to See the Plan, John wrote about his radical days in New York City. And he wrote about those radical days with a little bit of regret. And I want to quote it here. The biggest mistake Yoko and I made in that period was allowing ourselves to become influenced by the male macho, quote, serious revolutionaries, end quote, and their insane ideas about killing people to save them from capitalism and or communism, depending on your point of view. We should have stuck to our own way of working for peace, bed-ins, billboards, etc., end of quote. Well, good for John. 
It's constantly searching, constantly changing, but I don't necessarily know if I agree. I'm grateful that John Lennon and Yoko Ono produced some of the best agate prop ever recorded, even if at the time, a lot of his friends were kind of terrible. Well, the re-education is lucky to have returning guest Nick Gillespie, my friend, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, one of my favorite writers, and we are talking about one of the most interesting figures in recent pop culture history, John Lennon. Thanks so much for coming on, back on the re-education, Nick. I really am looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to start off getting some of your iconoclastic p- opinions about the Beatles out before we start. So just really quick, you were not a fan of some of the kind of, I don't know, sacred grails that most rock critics consider of the Beatles catalog, starting with Sgt. Pepper's. But I mean, you have, I've, we, we, I mean, our private conversations, you have also like kind of torn apart the White Album before. So just give me your like, these albums actually are not that good. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I now I'm struggling to recall the particulars of that argument, but it's, I mean, Sergeant Peppers is certainly an album that nobody actually enjoys listening to. It is so sanctified. I, I even talking about it, I feel myself being wrapped in kind of plastic or a dividing wall being put up between me and the music, kind of like when you go to watch or go to look at the Mona Lisa in the Louvre or something like that. But it's polished, it's interesting, it's super important, and it's about the last Beatles album that I'm going to listen to, partly because it seems so self-contained and kind of perfect in a in a pretty sort of way. You mean Sgt. Pepper's? Yeah. Okay, so you're not listening to Abbey Road? Well, you know, these are, for me, and this is partly either old manism or attention deficit disorder or a much vaster, more cosmic you know, view of things as I approach death, or at least the current state of Bruce Willis, which is that, you know, when you take a band and, you know, and there's no question the Beatles, the Beatles are the band, right? Like they are the ones that change the way we think about popular music. They are the ones who ultimately made it into an art form that's on par, like, you know, that's on par with serious music as well as literature and all of that. There's no Bob Dylan, who I think is the single most important creative figure in post-war America, but there's no way Bob Dylan is getting the Nobel Prize for Literature without the Beatles kind of sanctifying rock as a medium of expression in, in an artistic way. 
but what I am less and less interested in is the Beatles as album, as an album band, which is, of course, the great innovation that they had at the time, where other bands and other great performers, including you know contemporaries like the Rolling Stones, but even people before that, like Elvis or Ricky Nelson, you know, who dominated the charts in, in the late 50s and early 60s, or the Everly Brothers. Nobody is ever like, oh, you know, that third album they put out, Ricky Sings, exclamation point, had something going on beyond the individual songs on it. The Beatles changed all of that by giving, you know, their albums, you know, a heft to them. There is something distinct about Rubber Soul and Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's, the White Album, et cetera. Having said all of that, you know, when I listen to them now, I listen to songs and it's, you know, this was something the iPod, may it rest in peace, I think really changed one of the ways that we could listen to music, whereas yeah. you can just dump in all of the Beatles on a playlist and hit shuffle. And suddenly, you know, Please Please Me is going to be cheek to jowl with, you know, She's So Heavy or something like that. And it's, okay, this is a band that has a through line. And so in that sense, I think the Beatles albums are seriously overrated. And wow. I think there's a lot of filler on Abbey Road, certainly. Well, what's uh, the filler on Abbey Road? Puss's Garden, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Revolutionary uh, in its use of synthesizers. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, you know, and, and the little bang, you know, sounded. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, you know, you don't uh, think Mr. Like, Mustard. Uh, like, I mean, uh, these are not. You uh, never like, give me your money is genius. And like, yeah. Yeah, like, I do. Okay, I, th okay. I think the, the kind of most of the second side is, is phenomenal. You know, and it kind of the fugue and the dreamlike, yeah. you know, kind of movement of it. Let It Be is a bad album. You know, it's like, it, okay, well, I mean, it's not one of the the Beatles' better albums. So for you, I mean, Have, and, and all of this, and Revolver, by the way, it's, is it Rubber Soul and Revolver for you that it's like, okay, yeah, that's, we all agree that's amazing. Well, the, I mean, there's clearly a shift in, in yeah. the serious, I don't want to say seriousness, intention of their music and and a kind of the way that they were thinking about who they were musically. And, you sure. know, there's just something very different between Beatles for Sale or, you know, something like that and Rubber Soul and Revolver. I mean, and Rubber Soul, famously, Brian Wilson is listening yeah. to Rubber Soul and he's like, I got to one up this and he does Pet Sounds and then they listen to Pet Sounds and then they do Sgt. Pepper. And yeah. Okay. They had to their credit, to the Beatles' credit, and all of the, none of this is, like, you know, I'm not like shitting on the Beatles, you know, the, this all proceeds from the point of view that they are the single most important musical act, you know, since World so War I just, II. just, so just to distill your point is the actual albums themselves are not as important as the contribution that the Beatles sort of invented the yeah. idea of a rock album. Yeah. And that the act, you go back and you listen there's, I mean, there's certainly fluff on, on the white album. Yeah. Although it's also, you know, you can say, I mean, and but it I also guess has my favorite Beatles songs on it too. So, yeah. Well, and it's also like, you know, do you need the, the fluff? Do you need, you know, why don't we do it in the road or Martha, my dear. No, Martha, or, my dear uh, is phenomenal. Come on. Yeah. I, well, really? I mean, we just, I mean, all we can do is disagree about that. But what I'm saying is that it unfolds over four you know, sides yes. and it's kind of awesome in 
it's the general thrust of it. It's also at any one moment, you might be saying this is really not very good, but it all kind of works. And on something like that, and if you know, we're going to be talking about John Lennon, I think something like both the slowed down version of Revolution, but then Revolution number nine, which is not, you know, enjoyable to listen to in any kind of, you know, uh, it's it's often general understanding yeah. of that word, but it's like it's really kind of great, and it's one of the things that makes the Beatles radically different than I don't know, you know, like a, a band that I love that were contemporaries with them were the Birds, but the Birds struggle to put together, and I, and I say this as an absolute Birds maniac, they struggle to put together consecutive sides of albums that you know that don't have one or two real dogs in it. So. Okay, that's. You know what? I, 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 I get it. Okay. That's, I just wanted to get that out of the way because okay. those of you who, those people who know Nick in the world will know that he, you know, this is a, we've had this conversation a few times in private. All right. Now I want to start off by framing this conversation. And this is no disrespect to Paul McCartney, who I think ended up lit has, has lived a more, a better life as a human being. But John Lennon, I believe, and I think you would agree with me, is what made the Beatles kind of revel. It was the alchemy of him and McCartney and Harrison and Starr. So it was all of them together, obviously. But it was Lennon, who I think from an early age, he was in art school, kind of kind of understood himself as an artist. Whereas I think that McCartney, whose father was a musician, who was very much taken in by the tradition of like, you know, kind of band hall stuff in the 20th century and big bands and musicals in in the UK and this tradition of pop, not pop music that we think of today, but pop music that you would sort of associate, you know, with like Bye Bye Birdie or something like that, like a musical, that he was more of a craftsman, a great craftsman, the, maybe one of the finest songwriters we've ever seen. But there's a difference between somebody who kind of approaches it like, you know, like a, a very skilled artisan, which is McCartney, versus somebody who is like, a real artist and who has this radical vision of himself and what he's trying to do, which is Lennon. So maybe let's just start there. I mean, would you kind of agree with this general frame? Yeah, I, I do. And I think, you know, another way, and this is not particularly original, but mm -hmm. that, you know, McCartney is kind of the cream and then, you know, Lennon is the vinegar or the, yeah. the citrus that really cuts through that. And, you know, without, without Lennon, you know, McCartney is just too much to take. And we saw that, you know, towards the kind of end of the 70s, as he became further and further away from that, his stuff becomes less and less interesting because it's too upbeat, it's too saccharine, et cetera. Lennon provided something, you know, particularly interesting. And I think you're right to say, you know, part of it is that Lennon saw himself as an artist versus maybe an artisan or however you want to frame that. And, and again, none of this is too diminish McCartney. It's just to say they are different. I think a big part of it is that like McCartney, Lennon also had a relationship to the past, both of, you know, the rock era, but then also that era of their parents of the kind of British right. hall, hall, music hall, music, et cetera. But that Lennon's relationship to the past and his relationship to the world was so fraught and angry and yes. unsettled that it brings Something that really strikes with the counterculture and helps create it, it's, you know, it's part of the counterculture, but it's also it helps fuel it because it's like we want something better. We want something different. I am unhappy. 
and I don't know why. And to me, that sense of searching and that sense of, you know, of, of not fitting in and feeling cheated on some level, you know, is, is that drive is what helps make the Beatles better than, you know, the typical band that they were, you know, sharing a stage with. So, so let's start off with, 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 with Lennon. Lennon is, and McCartney both lose their mothers at, you know, in their, in their, in their teenage years. Yeah. And Lennon is raised by his aunt, Mimi, who is kind of, I mean, there's a lot written on this, but there's kind of a terrible, yeah. kind of a, a bad mother figure for him in the sense that she never encouraged him to be the artist that he was obviously born to be. Right. And she kept wanting him to, you know, get a useful skill. Right. He ends up going to art school anyway. He is taken in, obviously, by rock and roll. But he's also really interested, I mean, especially his, his friendship with Stuart Sutcliffe. He's really interested in the beats. He's really interested in avant-garde art. Right. He's interested in a whole series of things. He, he, he is encouraged to take his poetry seriously as a lyricist. And all of this is in Liverpool, which is not London. It's a northern English kind of, it's a dreary place, which I right. think used to, you know, used to produce lots of ships during the British Empire and is sort of mm -hmm. going through hard times. Yeah, it was a dumping ground for Irish immigrants who were desperate yeah. for work. Yeah, it's, you know, it was Buffalo as opposed to New York City. Exactly. Or Baltimore, you know, versus So you New could York say John City. Lennon is the Rick James <laughs> of the United Kingdom. Rick James is from Buffalo and also in my yes. view, a genius. So let's just start there. Early on, you know, he suffers a great tragedy. He has a just kind of a dysfunctional relationship with his, his, his parent. He's electrified by, in many ways, the beatniks and mm -hmm. as well as, you know, American rock and roll. And, that, and, that, and, then, and he's older than Paul McCartney and George Harrison. So when he forms his bands, the Quarrymen and mm -hmm. so forth, he's the leader. And that also gives him a kind of, kind of, you know, early on this sort of sense of direction, even though later on Paul McCartney kind of takes over the band. Right. So just that stew, did, did, how did that contribute to sort of how Lennon kind of emerged as an artist in the 1960s? Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, so he was born in 1940, which means he's about 15 years younger than Jack Kerouac, who was born, I think, in like 27 or 28. You mean 15 maybe years older. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, 15. Yeah. And so, you know, it's amazing what goes into that gap because the Beatles are really unimaginable in 1955, I think. Or let, let's put it this way. The Beatles of, of Rubber Soul and Revolver are unimaginable in 1955 at the, the dawn of the rock era. And I think what Lennon participates in is, and, and I increasingly think this was kind of a one-time shift through a portal after World War II, and it took place in England and it certainly took place in America in slightly different ways, but where people who had been raised in something of a class system, you know, it was more overt in England, less so in America, but it certainly existed and it certainly existed in East Coast cities that had been filled with immigrants in the, in the late 19th century and early 20th century and their kids who were coming up to be grateful for what you had, for what little you had and kind right. of live within that. And for a variety of reasons that I don't think are fully clear, part of it is just material increase, but part of it is you know, if World War One started to end this kind of broad-based case system in the West, World War II finished it off. And in England, 
there was increasingly less and less to invest in. If you were lower class, you know, in England, why would you, why would you put up with a system that was going to, you know, you were still being rationed into the fifties and you were not going to have any opportunities. And for whatever reason, you know, that, that uh, the ability of the English kind of caste system. And I think in America, something similar happened where the overlords in a, in a soft sense lost their ability to control young people who were like, we are not going to be our parents and we're not going to put up with it. And I think, you know, somebody like McCartney had a warm household and it changes the way he produces art compared to the way that somebody like Lennon does. And Lennon is, you know, an agent of destruction of chaos. Even his love songs oftentimes are kind of threatening. Um, He's an angry, you know, working class hero, as he would put it in one of his later songs that, you know, and, and he was also acid enough where he could never buy his own mythology, but he definitely wanted something radically different and radically better. And he was hungry for that. And I think he found that in art, you know, in art school and then going to Hamburg and hanging out with, you know, the, the German students who photographed him and helped sharpen the Beatles kind of Teddy boy image. And by all accounts, Lennon was a Teddy boy in the fifties. He was a rebel. Teddy boys were a phenomenon similar to the greasers, I guess, in the United States, which were leather jackets, jeans, they slicked back hair, back hair. They maybe pompadour and stuff like Jerry Lee Lewis and And James Dean and Marlon Brando in the wild one. That's right. You know, it's fascinating because those are all, I mean, you know, the, you know, the, it all gets slippery really quick, quickly, but you know, the Beatles grew up in the fifties That's right. and that's, you know, that was the youth culture in revolt, which was something pretty new because, you know, well, with the, the idea world, of an American, te- the teenager yeah. itself is fairly, yeah. the idea of that. And it's born out right. of increasing living standards, increasing expectations that people are going to go to school longer and that like, you're going to start working for a living at 18 rather than 15 or 13. And, you know, and, you know, and rock became this explosion of music, which was hated, you know, by virtually everybody was hated by adults. And in the United States, it was hated by the music industry. I think we've talked about this where, you know, national record labels really had to be dragged into signing up rock acts because they, you know, they didn't think there was a national audience for it. They found it threatening and frightening for all sorts of reasons, but mostly they didn't think it was very commercial. But that's the stuff that really energized and motivated Lennon and the Beatles, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, I mean, and it's fascinating, like also to think about them and this might take us off the topic, but, you know, Roy Orbison was only a few years older than the Beatles, but he hit it big in the fifties. And he, you know, even though he ended up working with George Harrison and Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and Jeff Lynn and the traveling Wilburys, Roy Orbison seems like he's from a different era. Totally. But he totally energized the Beatles to be like, okay, fuck it. We can we can kind of do whatever we want at a certain point. That's right. And you know, the the industry itself, which we were talking about, the Beatles come into is singles driven. There's a kind of factory that the, the the classic here is the Brill building, but also think of Phil Spector, who has a number of different groups. It's like kind of churning out 45 singles played on 45 rpm the idea of like you know this is this is an album of 12 songs that we've done and it's it's 
there were these called long players. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and if you want to really be, you know, we let's credit Frank Sinatra in the 1950s. He's on Capitol and he is the first person, I think, to do concept albums. So he he's like every song on, you know, Come Fly With Me is going to be about travel. All right. So, you know, it's different genre, obviously. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, youth music is seen as like, you know, it's not artistic. It's like get as many of it as possible. The, the people who were, you know, you could say the agents in this era, their their whole point was to try to squeeze as much out of the fad as possible because the idea that you would have music that, that that anybody would listen to this, you know, single even next year, let alone in 50 years, was kind of insane. So so that's the world the Beatles coming into, particularly when they come to America in 1960, the end of, I guess, is it the end of 63 or the, in 64 is when they really... When they, the they hit it big, but that's yeah, they, they were here it, right? in they go 63. On Ed Sullivan yeah. and, yeah. you know, everything is forever changed. It's like, you know, so... Which is, it, if I may, yeah. I'm not old enough to remember Ed Sullivan, but my brother, who was born in 1959, is, and I just have to say, I and I don't think people are making it up, but, you know, Ed Sullivan was a show that was on, like, Sunday nights or Friday nights or something, and a lot of people watched it, and it was the show that broke acts that people hadn't heard of like it would be kind of amazing if there was you know something like that i mean you can't do it in today's world which is infinitely superior you think saturday night live ever played that function you know i think it might have at some point in the late 70s and early 80s i mean when they would have on people like peter tosh or you know maybe the talking heads when they first appeared where they were kind of breaking acts but not in the way Sullivan, you know, and he, and Sullivan had comedians and, you know, dog acts. And then, you know, they would, he would sanctify, you know, kind of rock acts in a way that just must've been fascinating to know. Well, know, the story one... is he was in London and they were, the Beatles had already been a huge, huge like yeah. phenomenon in, in 60s by 63, the Beatles were a big deal in, in, in the yeah. UK. And he's like, I got to get these guys on my show. And at the time, none of the major American record labels, I mean, this is a fascinating story, but none of the major American record labels thought the Beatles were anything worth paying attention to. So the rights to their first singles went to these local labels. So like regional labels like Swan Mm -hmm. made a mint because they happened to be the the, the American distributor for these first Beatles singles, which everybody had to have after they go on Ed Sullivan. Okay, now, if you just looked at all of this, and the Beatles come to America and their first couple records, their first couple singles, Hard Day's Night even, although Hard Day's Night, you don't, you would have no idea that there was, that Lennon was somebody who was, a, was, an, was an important and original artistic creator, right? Would you yeah. agree with that? Or I mean, were there signs that you could sort of point I, to? I mean, I think there's signs of it. And, you know, and A Hard Day's Night is one of those, interesting phenomenons and that you know Beatlemania was already a thing but it is a a fantastic movie Richard Lester who became one of the you know one of the key directors of kind of swinging London and and 60s mindset you know it's a critique or or it's it's having fun with the idea of Beatlemania even as it's kind of exploiting it I believe the playwright was Alan Owen and or the screenwriter and he claimed to have crafted the Beatles personas, I think that's probably an overstatement and he sharpened them. But you can see in that, you know, they are really smart and intelligent and they're having fun, you know, in the in the way that things like the goon show, there's a, there's a British 
kind of tradition of playing a character, a version of yourself that I, you know, it's, I mean, it's really smart. And I think people understood that at the time, although, you know, there was a lot of harumphing by older people that any, anybody under 30 was, you know, not worth really talking sure. about or thinking about seriously, but, but there's real signs that they are different than, you know, other bands that are, you know, that are contemporary with them. I mean, how significant is it when Lennon and the Beatles do LSD for the first time? Sometimes oh, this is overstated, I guess. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's super important because this is also not simply that the Beatles took LSD and before that weed, but that they were kind of open about it, particularly with LSD. I mean, they didn't quite, you know, immediately shout from the the rooftops about it, but they did not hide its influence on their music. They did talk about it, you know, at various points. And I think this is, you know, to me, what the Beatles represent is that moment where they say it is okay. Like they're not going to be ashamed of the idea that they are trying to expand the world that they grew up in. They're trying to expand their consciousness. They're trying to expand even to the point of exploding the art forms that they work with. And to me, the lack of being, you know, there's no temerity with that. You know, when you start to, particularly on songs like She Said, She Said, and Rain, and Tomorrow Never Knows, which was originally called The Void and has, you know, bits Based from- the Tibetan Book of the Yeah, Dead. or the Timothy Leary, yeah. Ralph Metzner, Richard Albert version of it. Like, I mean, that is amazing because a lot of other people would have been nodding and winking about it and the Beatles right. are like no you know what this this matters to us and we are you know we're not going to hide it and you know and again you know part of this is they're reflecting much larger cultural currents as well as adding to them but i think the frankness of the Beatles and in a weird way you know they became you know by all accounts like at various points they all became kind of insufferable egoists but they sure. were also really kind of humble in the sense of like they, you know, they, if I, I almost think if they had been raised in, you know, in better circumstances and in, in more elite circumstances where there were rules for the world in place that they benefited from and hence respected, they wouldn't have done half the stuff that they did. And instead they were like, we are just, we're rolling with this. You know, we come from very little and we don't see any reason to stop until we've exhausted this, this journey. And that is, you know, it's, it's amazing. And also they're doing it in their twenties, you know, right. which again is like insane. One of the most insufferable quotes I remember reading from John Lennon was when he turned 30, he said like, oh, suddenly you're 30 and there's so much left to do. And it's like, are you fucking kidding? You know? And obviously that takes on a, a totally tragic cast, uh, you yeah. know, given that he only had a decade to live, but it's like, wow, they really packed in a lot. And I think the drug taking was a huge part of that. And, you know, the drug taking, there's a very good book about the Beatles and drug use. And, you know, the drug use goes back at least to the Hamburg days when they were using amphetamines all the time. I read a right. great story where for a while, Paul McCartney was living with his fiance, Jane Asher, who later became a success or was, you know, is a successful British actress, but her father was a doctor and he showed Paul McCartney how to crack open a methadrine inhaler so that you could get the piece of cardboard that had been soaked in <laughs> amphetamine. 
to like as the last, you know, kind of the filet mignon of the whole thing after the the inhaler was done. You know, they always had a a, a powerful relationship with drugs yeah, as kind of Jane performance. Asher's mother was a music professor, right? Who taught George Martin, their their the great producer yeah. for the Beatles, who I think you know is 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 a they wouldn't be have, have been able to reach the heights that they reached without him. Totally. Um, yeah. And then that's also, you know, that's that's a side issue that's fascinating, too, because he did kind of represent the straight world. But he also was able to translate their ideas because none of them really read or understood music. And he was able to kind of translate what they were hearing into something you could actually produce in a studio. For sure. Now, I just want to take a little bit of a side note, because I've always been fascinated by this. You know, I, I was born after all this in yeah. 72. But if you go back and you sort of say 1955, the biggest pop star in the world is Frank Sinatra. In 1960, it's Elvis Presley. By the way, there is a great thing that I think is in a documentary about Frank Sinatra, but there's a great moment. It might have been on Ed Sullivan where the two of them, Elvis and Sinatra meet and they sing verses of the one. One sings Witchcraft by Sinatra and the other one sings Heartbreak Hotel. And they kind of trade verses and they show, hey, you know, the, the, right. the two generations passing the torch. By the time the Beatles come on, they make Frank Sinatra and the and and Elvis Presley look like your parents' music. Yeah, and that's the other part of it that's kind of fascinating, which is like the, the weirdly the Beatles very much admired Elvis. They grew up as right. and he was one of their heroes, but at the same time, they made him in some ways irrelevant. I mean, I think Elvis reinvents himself in the late 1960s yeah. when he goes to Memphis and he puts together some terrific recordings. I'm not mm -hmm. taking anything away from Elvis Presley, but that that style of like, you know, these beach movies and everything like yeah. that, that was almost over. And it's like the Beatles doing hard days night and help. It was the last time you saw that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, those and, were big movies, whereas Elvis movies yeah. became, you know, increasingly awful and just kind of jokes. Right. They were bodily functions, not, you know, works of creation. That's correct. So I just like I just find that fascinating about how and how you know, quickly just, that shifted. Yeah. I mean, in five year chunks, you know, because by 1965, right. Elvis is finished. You know, the Beach Boys are almost finished, really, as an act. I mean, like the the early sure. 60s pop music, you know, was gone and it was being replaced, you know, rapidly by these art songs by bands like the Beatles. Right, and it's 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 interesting also because. Both Paul and John loved Brian Wilson, and they thought mm -hmm. that the Beach Boys were geniuses. So yeah. they, 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 I think they respected the the Beach. Yeah. Brian Wilson, at least, is a genius in a way that they may not have respected the. I think they 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 understood Elvis was important, but it's 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 a little different there. All right, so that's when we have this explosion. It's the mid '60s. They've tried acid. I talk a little bit because you know so much about Bob Dylan. Clearly, you can hear Dylan's influence on songs like Norwegian Wood, mm -hmm. Nowhere Man. Dylan, you, know, you have to have to hide part your of the love story. away. I mean, in hell, sure. you know, Lennon starts wearing a kind of Dylan-esque cap, like a folk singer's cap. Yes. So it's talk a little bit about that, because yeah. to me, I think that's also really important, because I also think that Dylan is influenced, obviously, by the Beatles, yeah. too. But but let's talk about just Dylan's influence. I, on Lennon. Yeah. And I and it's interesting that the the you know, his Dylan ends up having more of a professional relationship with George Harrison, you know, Harrison. And he wrote a song yep. for All Things Must Pass. He appeared at the concert for Bangladesh. They're in the Traveling Wilburys, which, by the way, you know, just as an aside, the Traveling Wilburys. Uh, which produced like two and a half albums, I guess, or so in the late 80s and early 90s, is just a phenomenal band. You know, having said any of that, 
I mean, it's clear that Dylan and Lennon are both wordsmiths in a way that right. the others aren't. Like they are poets, not first and foremost, because it's always music to them, but you know, they have a kind of rapport and I think a kind of competition, you know, because they they are the guys who can really speak and write and things like that. And I think Lennon, to his credit throughout the sixties, and you know, he you know, he you know, after they meet Dylan, he's gonna he's gonna meet Yoko Ono in the late sixties, or yeah, rather in late sixty six. Late sixty six. Yeah. But Lennon was always looking for you know, the next thing in terms of enlarging himself. And I think what's interesting about his interaction with Dylan is that it's not a kind of slavish imitation. It's really right. an influence. So he's not, he's not writing Dylan-esque songs, really, but like clearly you can hear it in the, in the songs that you mentioned, like both in terms of some of them becoming more folk ballad ballady like Norwegian Wood or uh, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, but then in the concerns of things like Nowhere Man and whatnot, you know, it, it's thematically. And he does, you know, it, it washes back the other way, too, because I don't think Dylan, Dylan could not really see himself as a rock star until he kind of fully encountered the Beatles. And Lennon, I think, incarnated that for him better than the you other. don't think it was Dylan's encounters with in that tour with the band, right? That made him a rock star. No, no, but I mean, because like a rock star needs a backing band, but I sure. don't think he necessarily saw himself as an individual, you know, folk music. And, you know, in, in the early 60s, folk music was far bigger than rock music in terms of sales. Right. And, and, you know, people like Joan Baez had her on TV show and things like that. But the rock star figure is something distinct from the folky. And you can be Pete Seeger, you can be Joan Baez, and you are not a singing savior. You are not, you know, Dionysius. You're not, you are not Jesus Christ on the cross, which mm -hmm. is rapidly approaching, you know, and, and I think in its fullest kind of iteration in Jim Morrison. But the rock star is, you know, is becoming this person who is both speaks for the, the community of listeners and is going to be sacrificed for them. I mean, it, the, the rock star is a Christ-like figure. And Lennon, you know, Lennon, Lennon anticipates that, I think, in a big way. Well, he, of course, says the famous, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Right. Which prompts this backlash. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that very quickly, Nick, because... Which is also, if I may, I mean, this is also the quality of thought Lennon throughout his work, you know, and, and like the other thing about the Beatles, which is truly amazing, and it's, it's a refreshing... When you see it now, like when you see Bob Dylan doing interviews as he's becoming bigger, he's like, he's funny in a kind of hipster way where it's like, if you're in on the joke, you get it. But, right. but he's like, you know, he doesn't, he never says anything. That's the whole thing. Like he refuses to be interviewed. The Beatles are really fucking funny and engaging and they push the limit of stuff. But then it's Lennon is the one who starts talking about stuff beyond pop music. And in a, I think in a profound way, and not not in a you know uncomplicated or unambivalent way. That's all good, but he is the model for kind of like the loudmouth rock star who starts talking right. about things beyond the music. Which but I want is to get to this, great. the Beatles bigger than Jesus yeah. because well, I, that's I'm sorry that the the yeah, starting no, point right, is but, that like right. who would say that you know like only John Lennon would say that in the in the mid '60s. Well, I mean, yeah, in the context of the quote, mm -hmm. is he's, 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 
he's making the same observation that like Time Magazine made when they had the God is Dead cover, yeah. which is that in the 1960s, fewer and fewer people are going to church. Okay. What I wanted to get at, though, is that it's true that there were there was a backlash, that there were bonfires of Beatles records that, you know, and the Ku Klux Klan kind of tried to take advantage of it. So, yes, there were reactionary forces in the United States that seized upon this quote in a rare kind of like fanzine magazine and they turned it into something. Yeah, which then it ended up getting reprinted, I think, in like Tiger Beat in the U.S. It wasn't Tiger Beat. It was another magazine. But it was like a teen magazine because there were no rock magazines really at the time. Right. Okay. so that was and it was and I'm not saying that that wasn't a real thing. However, Lenin had already like Lenin, the Beatles were not at this point just something that the teenagers really liked and that parents could understand when we had our punk episode that would have been the punks of the mid 70s with their nazi iconography was something that the parents absolutely couldn't understand and hated but you know the teenagers understood how cool it was there were plenty of 30 year olds and 40 year olds who thought that the beatles were amazing yeah and there were they had already know, been sanctified as artists by people like Leonard Bernstein and what. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I want to. It's really important to get that. Is that that like, you know, they would have like classical music professors yeah. who would say, if you look at the structure of she's leaving home, it's right. like a Bach concerto. And and, like, and certainly that, you know, is I think more McCartney is the one who sure. kind of gains that respect. And with songs like I mean, Yesterday is one of them, but also Eleanor Rigby and For No One like these have, yeah. you know, classical like artistic flourishes that really spoke to an audience of, I think of older people who, you know, might've been on the fence otherwise that this is just, you know, Wagner for teenagers. This now this is like, this is art. Exactly. So I just, and I think that's really important because there were other moments in this. If you want to look at rock history or, you know, the history of popular music, I would say punk hip hop, early Sabbath, Early Black Sabbath, like the first, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. those really heavy records were things that like really were reviled by the establishment right? and loved by, you know, these young people. The Beatles were like huge pop stars. And for a period, everybody loved yeah. them. And then Lennon says this and then, you know, right. The, you know, like the, the, it's, the I mean, it's it's like when Justin Bieber you know, visited the Anne Frank house and said, oh, you know, Anne Frank would have been a believer. Right. <laughs> right and right. but on a much, much bigger That's level awesome. and on a much more right. interesting one, because everybody loved the Beatles. Like, whereas, you know, I mean, I know uh, lots of people who have no fucking idea who Justin Bieber is, whereas like everybody at least knew who the Beatles were. If they couldn't pick them out of a lineup. Yeah, it's it's amazing really that yeah. kind now, of there started. were there were brit there there was an element of like the the british tory types yeah. of the 60s who hated the beatles yeah. well you met also it was a performative hatred of, of right of but there was culture. there was like an element of like the there was a there, there i ran into this in my own career when george harrison died and it's a long story but john o'sullivan was the editor of upi at the time and i had no idea like he just despised the beatles <laughs> and like it had you know, and that has to do with the fact that, like, this is, you know, were you were not allowed first... to write about George Harrison? No, let me, death, I'll, I'll just tell this story. Yeah. This is a funny story for the audience. <laughs> we were on an, this was 2001. We were on a listserv, and this was like after 9 11, and I was the State Department correspondent. So, you know, I was on a, a lot of these emails, even. And so Harrison dies. We had a guy named Marty Seif who could turn out copy, like, you know, in a snap of a finger. 
and he writes this over the top obit about George Harrison, which at the time, and I have changed my position on this since, I just, so I just sort of wrote, I dashed off my critique of it, which was nasty. I have to say, I sort of said, you know, Harrison was really never as talented. He just had a good eye for talent. That's why he bankrolled the Monty Python movies. But, you know, and isn't it a shame that, you know, Eric Clapton's pie isn't it a pity wife's... if you're talking about Harrison, you should say, isn't it a pity? It isn't is a pity. One... Right. Yeah. Right. Right. That, 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 that uh, Eric Clapton's pie on to his wife's adultery with Eric Clapton yeah. rocks harder than anything that Eric, George Harrison ever wow. did. So it was it, I anyway, I wrote it originally thinking it was like an email to 20 people at UPI. O'Sullivan reads it and he's like, finally, <laughs> the next generation gets it. And he, he had me turn it into something to put on the wire. Yeah. And I was like, I, re- I all these people were like, how could you do that? Yeah. You listen to Here Comes the Sun or something. Yeah, I'm like, that's great. And now, of course, I recognize that Harrison yeah. was a brilliant songwriter right. and it wasn't it, it was unfair. It was I was unfair to him in that piece. But anyway, say la vie. But the point yeah. is that it's interesting that like who didn't like the Beatles is a fascinating right. question. Right. Yeah. Okay, so then I want to, I know as we're going through this, so the mid-60s happened. The Beatles are both at the, it's very rare that you have a group that is both the most popular thing in the world and also at the height of the avant-garde, right. changing music yeah. too, you know. And and this is when, you know, he meets Yoko and like kind of falls off a lot because he still, he loves heroin yeah. and he can't keep it together. And that's when, you know, you could say Paul McCartney really, takes responsibility for kind of keeping the Beatles together, sure. right? But then, ironically, my favorite Lennon is in this period. Yeah. This is Dear Prudence. Yeah. I am the walrus. Right. This is, I mean, I don't know, for for me at least, those are, that's the, the essential Lennon is that and then the early solo stuff. Right. Yeah. All when he's dealing with like, you know, a really serious heroin yeah. addiction and, and the excess of his own kind of personality because he's a prick at this point and he's, and if you watch that, you know, interminable but interesting documentary yeah. that was, came out last year on the on the Get Back sessions, yeah, you see Lennon just like you know tearing poor George Harrison and others yeah. to ribbons, it's, you know? uh, and he's alternating between kind of nodding out and being mean, yeah, right. When he's present, he's it's mean, disturbing, right. yeah. And by all accounts, you know, there's a fantastic book which you I think is no longer in print but you can buy copies of it from the mid 70s called The Man Who Gave the Beatles Away by Alan Williams who was the manager is probably too strong a word but he's the one who organized their first couple of trips to Hamburg and then he yeah. you know and he uh, Brian Epstein yeah this is he he like signed over to Brian Epstein whatever loose you know hold he had on the Beatles and the book is fascinating because, and it carried in the, the paperback edition that I had, again, it was from the mid seventies and it had a Lennon blurb on it saying like, you know, this is, you know, the best book on the Beatles by the only man who could tell it. And it's like, John comes across extremely poorly. He's very mean in it. He's famous for saying things like on the streets of Liverpool. And this is in the late fifties, early sixties, when he would see crippled people, he would say, you know, some people will do anything to get out of the war things like that you know like he's very mean and nasty and funny he's like dirt right. nasty which was the lennon character in the the ruddles parody of the right. Beatles, done by eric idol and a couple of other people and that is kind of the best lennon i i think this is also one of the reasons why he's captivating because again unlike paul mccartney you know lennon you know he is going to go to a dark place and to a place where he might sacrifice himself 
but he's simultaneously super idealistic and really, really dark. And that flipping back and forth, I don't, you know, he's kind of bipolar on some level. It's yeah. really interesting. And he is always trying to, you know, grow into the next shell that he has, you know, like a lobster or something like that. I apologize for these metaphors, but, and that's where for me, and a lot of Beatles fans, you know, and, and a lot of like people who don't really care, but know a little bit about it, always mock Yoko Ono, or they always say, oh, Yoko Ono, you know, destroyed the Beatles, destroyed John Lennon, yeah. et cetera. And it's, gets it exactly wrong. She absolutely catalyzed him into becoming, you know, the, the musician or the, the figure that you'd like best, which is the one who is willing to, you know, go, he has a lot of dark nights of the soul, but he also then writes these stripped down raw songs that are aching and yearning. I mean, his stuff on the White Album is, you know, besides Dear Prudence, there's, you know, Julia and even songs like oh, Happiness yeah. is a Warm Gun. There is something he is so... The, Happiness is a Warm Gun is the best song ever written about heroin. Yeah, it's, you know, there's something so broken in him you know, and later he wrote a song called Crippled Inside. You know, he I mean, yeah. this recurs his, you know, his fixation on the lack of a mother figure. I mean, what's amazing is he isn't even trying to find a father figure, which is a, which is interesting. You know, like he just takes it for granted that his world, there is no male. You know, there is no father. It's like it's about the, the absent mother. You know, but Yoko not only, I think, stretches him artistically because she's bringing in a lot of other stuff and she was involved in the fluxus movement in Japan and performance art in the U S and in England, but then also opens him up to stuff like primal scream therapy by Arthur Janov that they were doing mm -hmm. in the late sixties, which, you know, on a, on a certain level is, you know, idiotic, the worst kind of like high sixties silliness growing out of, you know, a kind of avant-garde from, you know, that starts in the twenties or thirties. But on another level, it really merges well with rock because rock music ultimately is a form of kind of emotional release that sometimes gets filtered through an intellect. But, yeah, you know, the screaming and the shouting and the wailing of the guitars, you know, of Lennon in this period, this is, you know, this is all coming because he's a seeker, I think, in a way that, you know, and broken in a way that McCartney is not. I think that's right. So it's in this period that then we start to see, I mean, listen, I think Lennon always had, was always yeah, kind of had a, you know, a dissident's view of politics, I should say. Right. Like, he, you know, there's a famous story when they're still teenagers and he's in the quarryman and they're doing a version of that 50 song, Dom, 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 you know, what's it like, you know, come and go with me. Yeah. You know that song, Come and Go? And then he would say, Come and he would sing, Come and Go with me to prison. I'm tempted to ask you, what yeah. What did you do with the money? What? The money your mother gave you for singing lessons. Oh, <laughs> very funny. Bye. All right. I, I appreciate A that. A Beatles okay. callback, but yes. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Lennon's talking with the, in the quarry man talking about that. Anyway, no, no. He, anyway, but the point is that he's always had this kind of like, you know, I don't know. He was always, you're right, that he was, I, I said on, in, in our conversation before, like he's, kind of a satyr or Dionysus kind of yeah. figure in that like he, you can get to this kind of mix of of both like drunken ecstasy but also almost a sense of kind of where you where you're, he's antisocial yeah and and, and you're going to be torn apart yeah. by your followers yes. you and know Bacchus right. is is a lot of fun right up until the moment that he gets torn apart right so in this period 
he also embraces, we should say, really radical politics. Not just the standard rock star, like, end the war, man. Yeah. Like, you know, legalize pot. Or, it's not just that. He is, like, you know, when Leonard Bernstein would have, this is the great Tom Wolfe essay about radical chic. He, too, is meeting with the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. He's... Yeah. He, he really... And the White Panthers. Right. Lenin, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's... The, yeah. And let's just talk a little bit about that yeah. because I, I bring it up because I think that, you know, his best known song as a, as a solo act is Imagine, right. which in my view is just flabby pablum. And that song would make it seem like John Lennon, you know, just wants to imagine a world without war and borders and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But in fact, he is definitely at least for a period of maybe three years aligned with a violent and radical left. Yeah. Would you say that that's correct? Yeah, I think so. And and in in a way, he also, you know, it's it's weird because part of it is politics in the, you know, not in electoral or partisan ways. He he isn't the type of rock star who's going to go and do, uh, you know, benefit concerts for George McGovern or something like that. But there right. is a politics, you know, and he ended up with the White Panther Party, and uh, you know, and wanted to free John Sinclair. That's like a big part of the. Well, that was, that was the York. pot guy, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, who was involved with the MC5 in Detroit, who were like a radical left wing, you know, anarchist collective and all right. of that kind of stuff. But like, you know, the songs that he was putting out right after the Beatles are things like Power to the People, Give Peace a Chance, War is Over if you want it, you know, Happy Christmas, Give Me Some Truth, Instant Karma. There's. You know, it, Give me some truth is phenomenal. It is. And and these anticipate, yeah. you know, I don't want to say they anticipate punk, but like compared to later Beatles stuff, they're they're really stripped down. They're short and they're direct and they're message driven. They're not, you know, like his later songs. I love Dream Number Nine, which is mm -hmm. phenomenal. But these are the antithesis of that. These are like, you know, two minute, you know, kind of broadside songs. That are, you know, something that maybe, I don't know, you know, Phil Oaks would have been singing a decade before, but it, they would have been tedious and they would have been about specific, you know, members of, you know, of, of a regime in, in Cuba or something like that. Right. Lenin's are much more general. They're much more energetic and they are radical. Like he's trying to push for a real change in discussion when you and when you look at like the the bed in in Toronto. You know, the people yeah. who are in the room with him, including Timothy Leary and whatnot, you know, he, you know, he was going for just an explosion of political categories in the, you know, in the direction of a kind of like anarchism doesn't quite get to it, but it's just kind of like, you know, an abundance of trying out different things and doing new things and not, you know, and just like breaking all of the existing, you know, kind of ways of talking about stuff which I find really fascinating. And it's very rare because like, you know, when Jim Morrison, you know, to think of other rock gods who are kind of contemporaneous with it, they weren't talking in these kinds of categories, like even to the extent that people might've been projecting things onto them. Lennon was, did have a politics that was distinct from almost anybody in the rock space. And it, but it's also, I think we now, think that politics is just about partisanship or about right. very specific causes. So like, you know, in the late seventies and early eighties, there were no nukes concerts. 
you know, about like, we need to stop all nuclear power, you know, and, you know, they sold out Madison Square Garden and it's Crosby, Stills and Nash, et cetera. You know, Lenin is talking about something that is as or is more radical, but it's it's harder to kind of understand now what a massive change break that was with the status quo. That's right. Now, I want to get back to something you mentioned is that I do think that the I do think the first plastic Ono Mm -hmm. and solo Lenin albums are proto punk. Sure. It's not as direct as MC5. It's not as direct as Iggy Pop, probably. You know, but in the same category that we would say, you know, the Velvet Underground, you know, yep. had to exist for the class to eventually. I know. And, he... and I, I think, in you know, what what's missing is the kind of grinding guitar or loudness that you see yeah. in like, you know, the MC5 or the Stooges or something like that. But when especially as a response to his Beatles stuff or to the late Beatles, late 60s stuff, the songs are mostly short. They're very direct and they. You know, a big part of punk, and I guess we talked about this, part of it is the music, but part of it is the lyrics. And, yeah. you know, the lyrics are insistent. You know, Give Me Some Truth is like, you know, it is a wail. It's a primal scream of like, you know, let's cut through the falseness. And and again, you, you know, you can critique Lennon and Ono, you know, they're limousine liberals in some way, or they're, they're you know, they're Rolls Royce liberals and Todd Rundgren actually a couple years into the seventies after a big feud with Lennon wrote a song called rock and roll pussy, where he was like, you know, either get up and, you know, get out of bed and do something, but don't pretend that you're, you know, you're a radical when you're, you know, being driven, chauffeured around in a Rolls Royce. Having said that these songs, you know, this is a real response to the kind of gaseousness of late sixties rock and, and the beginning of progressive rock. I think that's right. Now, Moving forward a little bit, there's something called the long weekend, which is really like what two and a half years or something. I think it's actually he, closer to eighteen months. But eighteen yeah, months, it's like okay. two years. He leaves Yoko, right. goes off with his assistant yeah. to L.A., and just basically does drugs for a year and a half. Right? I mean, well, like, what, no, but what is, this? What? Yeah, that's also. I mean, it's fascinating because they. He also produced like three albums. He produced Harry Nilsson's record. He had a bunch of collaborations with both Elton John and David Bowie. Yeah. You know, whatever gets you through the night as well as like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like on young Americans. Yeah. He's doing fame. He is. Yeah. He is, you know, the May Pang, the assistant who Yoko said you should go off with him. Like Yoko in most, you know, accounts is really kind of a ringmaster. Like she's, she's really directing everything one way or the other, but you know, he, she, May Pang always says, you know, like people talk about it, this lost weekend. It's like the most productive, you know, part of his life. And there's something to that. Really? No. But, okay, a lot of so the records what, that came out. Yeah. You know, and it was his last. What were the verse. records that came out of the lost weekend? So it's like from 73 to 75. So let's. Walls and Bridges. Yeah. Which was a real tour de force. I think Mind Games. I'm trying to find his discography. Oh, yeah. Mind Games I, is a jam the rock and roll record which is which is not so good for a variety of reasons but the the collaborations with Elton John who was at his peak and Bowie who was entering his yeah. a peak but yeah you've basically have mind games walls and bridges rock and roll as well as collaborations and and a couple of you know and you know and then he takes a break he comes back and you know the story that always gets told is that he told Yoko that he was going out for a newspaper and then he came back like two years later and was like, here's your fucking newspaper. But then he, right. then he kind right. of disappeared 
for five years until double well, he's, fantasy. he's a dad. Yeah. Yeah, he um, disappeared from public view. For the right, he time. loves Sean. You know, I mean, he says in an interview, I think right before he, mm-hmm. he's murdered, you know, he talks about how much he loves being a dad and everything like that. And yeah. he, he records Double Fantasy. Mm-hmm. What do you think of Double Fantasy? I think it's a little retro-y hokey in retrospect. I like yeah, the raw Lennon. Yeah, it's, it's hard to listen to it without, you know, without, you know, outside the context of his death, of his murder. Yeah. You know? and, and again, that kind of, you know, he's 40 years old and it's amazing to think you know that that he was he meant that much to somebody in such a deranged way that uh, you know he was he was assassinated you know he was shot in you know in cold blood in front of his apartment building and things like that and i uh, you know double fantasy i think you know both starting over i i agree it's kind of a retro album for sure yeah. and you he, know he, he, he's, he's definitely giving us like elvis inspired there's a lot of pastiche but i think watching the wheels is one of you know one of his very best songs which is and it is you know kind of like there's also beautiful boy on that album which is really good and i think it's it's a good capstone to his career you know who knows yeah, what he would have done yeah yeah and and not not in a bad way. You know, this is also... Yeah, he's, a, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's entering middle age and kind of responsibility and whatnot. So I I like that, Lennon. I, you know, I will tell you a story. When my I was in high school in 1980, and I was out late. It was during the week, but I, or, and I guess. And I came home. I was at like some book club, like a nerdy book club. And my father, who was an insomniac, my father was born in 1923, so he really stopped listening. He stopped listening to Sinatra before Sinatra's like second comeback or something. Like he Mm -hmm. didn't really care about music. And I came home and he was like, oh, he was up. And he said, oh, one of those Beatles was killed. And I was like, wow, (laughs) what do you mean? And like, for me, I was, I had just discovered the Beatles. So I was like, oh, the Beatles are the greatest, you know, art of all time and everything. And I was like, what do you mean? One of those Beatles. And then he said to me, not the one with the nose, the one with the wife. And I was like, oh, John Lennon. <laughs> and and wow. in a way, I think that kind of captures part of Lennon's legacy in that he, you know, particularly with Yoko, and I, and I realize, you know, there's a lot of bitterness in the first marriage with Cynthia Lennon, who kind of, who wrote a, a great memoir about that and why not? And Julian Lennon certainly has a lot of feelings that, that seem to be mostly resolved now. But like John Lennon, we can safely say, was a horrible first husband, you know, oh, full yeah. stop, no question. But Lennon, you know, with Yoko, it was one of the first couplings public where the man who was the biggest rock star in the world, or, you know, he's in like, you know, the, the Holy Trinity, you know, it's like he's one of three great rock stars, gave full credit and equal status to his wife, who was a phenomenal artist in her own right, which has been yes. kind of submerged. And the, the, the cultural shift that that kind of inaugurates is pretty amazing. And, you know, one of the things that I think about when I think about John Lennon and how he changed, you know, how he changed the way we kind of think about a lot of stuff is that, is that he had a very public marriage with somebody who everybody was like, who is this weirdo? Squire magazine famously published a horrible story 
talking about Yoko Ono, like using fake Japanese and like, you know, you know, where Japanese people can't say L's and R's properly and things like that, yeah, yeah, calling yeah. her his number one gloopy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the amount of abuse that he took and that they took and how that shattered certain parts of, of, you know, kind of like everyday life. It made so many things more possible when John Lennon and Yoko Ono and, you know, she's wearing army fatigues and a beret right. and is giving a black power salute, you know, and on one, on the one hand, this is the most ridiculous kind of radical chic. And on another level, it completely freed up the world to be like, you know what, fucking be who you want to be. And I think that's mm. part of Lenin's real, you know, contribution. And like when he's talking about fighting power, it ultimately, it isn't like, you know, we just need to get Walter Mondale elected and then everything will be okay. It's like, no, like power is everywhere and you should fight it and grab it and seize it and use it to your own ends. Part of my favorite Lenin stuff was he and Yoko co-hosted the Mike Douglas show, which was oh, an yeah, afternoon was talk show, you know, that was right. on for like an hour and a half each episode. And they brought on, you know, they brought on like a feminist lawyer. They brought on Jerry Rubin. They brought on a macrobiotic chef who cooked for Mike Douglas. And Mike Douglas was like a big band leader. And he was, you know, he was a square. He was the establishment, but he loved them. And they sang songs together. And it's, you know, it is just an amazing moment as transformative as when I think David Bowie, like five years later, appeared on Bing Crosby's final Christmas special. And like you just see these worlds collide and yeah. and after that you know anything is possible like if john lennon and yoko ono are going to have jerry rubin on the mike douglas show and george carlin and they're going to sing luck of the irish which is this you know scabrous attack on british colonization of ireland which at its you know at the time there were like you know a lot of terrorist violence going on in ireland if mike douglas is going to do that like anything is possible and that's kind of fucking great. And I think that's oh, that's yeah. Lennon in a way, you know, Harrison in the Beatles had a version of that with the higher consciousness stuff and, you know, and, and bringing in a kind of mysticism into American culture that, you know, very few people ultimately, you know, you know, glommed onto for good. But it really opened up possibilities. It opened up the way we think about the world and about culture and who we are. Lennon did something, I think, possibly even more profound because it was well this... i love that scene in you mentioned that about in the in the documentary on the get back sections where poor george harrison is talking about their pilgrimage to india as if it was this yeah. profound moment in his life yeah. because it's just like his religion it's yeah. his way of life and then john just dismisses it like well i can't believe what the hell we were doing or something like that yeah like, and ringo is like oh, i don't i don't like indian food right yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly he's like and then what he wrote, Sexy Sadie, which was his total yeah. cut down of the Maharishi. Right. It was just great. Yeah. I want to just now just uh, a couple things we missed in all this. Sure. What do you but, make? Uh, but if, the... if I may, I mean, I guess my yeah. thesis and this is, yeah. you know, following off of yours, really, you know, what what makes Lenin interesting and worth remembering is that every once in a while figures come along. In unexpected ways, you know, he wasn't yeah. a novelist and he wasn't like a filmmaker wasn't this, he was, you know, the head of a group that made pop records for kids. And then they suddenly expand the possibilities of, you know, of what individuals could do or what groups could do or what societies could be like. He introduced 
you know, through Yoko or, or with collaboration with Yoko and, and the Beatles and all of this other stuff, just like a vast, like whole new set of possibilities. And it's worth looking at that and what goes into that and what, you know, what are we missing now? What are the, you know, because we think we live right. in a wide open society, you know, every, every taboo has been broken. Every thought has been thought, but you know, what, what are, what are the constraints that we are not aware of and who, who are the change agents who are going to come in and like blow apart our world in a way that does cause damage, but also causes many, many more possibilities. I mean, do we have any kind of artistic figure right now, either in the visual arts or the, or music or film that, you know, I don't think we do. I'm trying to. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say because things are also different since there's no more mainstream culture in the way that there was. It doesn't, you know, when Seinfeld, I always think about this, I wrote about this 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago for reason when Seinfeld was the number one rated show in America, its actual audience size would not have placed it in the top 10 in 1968 when the Beverly Hillbillies was the most popular show. Just in terms, even though there's like a third more Americans and it was the number one show, its audience was much smaller because the mainstream has been fragmenting forever because we have more options. So it's harder for any one individual or any one artist to change things. But I think people like Jordan Peele, the filmmaker, does mm-hmm. that to a certain degree. I think there's some filmmakers who are who do a lot of different productions of different types of shows and things like that. That's possible. I think, you know, she's cooled off, I think, as a musical artist, but somebody like Lady Gaga, you know, has that potential. I think Madonna was that figure in the late 80s. She forever, she destroyed the, the virgin whore complex in Western society, which was a thing. And it really isn't anymore, not in the way that it used to be because she, you know, she owned it and changed it and spit it back out, you know, and she is kind of now in her, you know, whatever happened to baby Jane phase, which is unfortunate, but you know, she, she was a, somebody who changed society, I think in a way that's similar to the way that Lennon or the Beatles did. All right. So just a few more things to wrap up. I want to get your thoughts on, I love this, that right after the Beatles, after they break up, there was acrimony. Sure. And people forget that originally Paul was blamed. Yeah. Paul was the one who announced it, I think, in a press release. And it was included in his first solo record. Yeah. And then, like, in this period of, like, a year or two, they both release singles that are just vicious to one another. How Do You Sleep at Night Mm -hmm. by Lennon. So what do you make of that, the kind of, it's like almost forerunner to like a huge part of the hip hop genre of you know yeah of diss tracks yeah and and for very specific feuds yeah yeah yes Uh, and it was really like like lennon was just cutting saying like your 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 music is muzak yeah he's so funny boring he is a he's a mean british comic writer yes he's evelyn waugh or something he's really really great in that in that mode and he he did a hundred thousand word interview with rolling stone which oh yeah is also remarkable because it's so open in a way that no you know no public figure is for you know for obvious reasons but this is also i think one of the the essential facts of lennon is that he was kind of an open book once when you got to him in the right circumstance and again, even thinking like, you know, going back to Arthur Janoff and primal scream therapy, you know, and the idea there is Freud talked about the primal scene, which is when a child sees 
his parents having sex and realizes right. that he is not the object of the mother's desire in particular, but he's, you know, and Arthur Janoff developed primal scream therapy, which was where you would try to recover, you know, that moment as well as the moment of your birth. And John and Yoko did it. And there's, you know, the Rolling Stone cover from the early seventies where Lennon is naked and is curled up next to, yeah. in a fetal position next to Yoko, which is just stunning, like to do something like that. But like he, he was really open about therapy and about yeah. like, and you know, and not in a, not in a way where he was medicalizing his personality defects. He was like, no, I need to know more about myself. Like I, you know, again, opening up, you know, a, a kind of method of, of self-investigation that was still in bad odor, you know, only crazy yeah. people went to head shrinkers, much less, you know, got naked and screamed all the time and stuff mm. like that. And so, I mean, I, you know, the acrimony seems to have faded. Um, oh, and, no, it did by 75 yeah. when yeah. they were. And, and there's and that moment, there was a moment where, and it's a shame it didn't happen when George Harrison was guesting on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, there's a story that Paul and yeah, John Lauren were Michaels watching. A, yeah. You all, but Paul and John were watching from the Dakota and they were thinking about right. going down to the studio because Lauren Michael had, you know, famously there was a running joke that he would offer like $300 for the Beatles to read. Yeah. Right? And they were going to do it. But, you know, the Beatles, I think all, you know, they obviously all reconciled with each other. And by, you know, throughout the seventies, they all kind of appeared on each other's records in, in varying ways, but it makes sense. You know, they were in a super, I mean, you know, they were in a, you know, a band for a very short period of time, you know, really less than a decade. And that was so creative and so popular, you know, and then it ended. It Think about the fact it. that it's, you know, the Beatles in America, at least, we don't know them until 64. Mm -hmm. how, how the band metamorphosized between, yeah. in really five years, you'd say 64 to 69, yeah. it's... I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. I mean, no. there's certainly you can you can chart, you know, the evolution of all kinds of bands in the 60s. Yep. There's a huge difference between, I don't know, like Ruby Tuesday and Exile yeah, Street Fighting Man or something like that. Yeah. But, the, yeah. And so it's not. But it doesn't only... matter. It just it yeah. doesn't matter in the same way. And I, I say that as somebody like if you said, give me the 10 best Beatles songs and the 10 best Stone songs, I think I would say the Stones are the better band. But as a cultural touchstone, you know, the Beatles are different. I, I, I wouldn't even say they're my favorite 60s band. I think bands like the Velvet Underground are much more interesting, although much, you know, smaller and flawed and all of that kind of stuff. But like the Beatles really changed society and what we see as possible. And that, you know, and, and Lennon is a huge part of that. And the way he continued, especially in that, you know, in his early solo career, and in a, a broad variety of cultural ways was amazing. He also, if I may, this might sound you know, mm. jingoistic, but the other thing that is really memorable about Lenin is his fight to stay in the United States. Oh, yeah, had, we should talk about that. Drug the Nixon problems. administration wanted the, to... Yeah, the Nixon administration worked really hard. There's a very good book by the historian John Wiener about this, where he did a Freedom of Information Act and basically compiles all the, you know, the complete FBI dossier against Lenin. He was on Nixon's enemies list. Nixon wanted him gone. And Lenin, you know, talked about both New York City and America as the place he wanted to be. He famously said once, if, if I lived in the days of Rome, I would want to live in Rome. 
That's why right. I want to live in New York City. And he also extended that to America, which is kind of amazing as well, because in a way, and this might be too overwrought, but you know, the, I, I think a lot about the urge in people, particularly in the 20th century, to remake themselves both as individuals and, and to kind of create groups or societies even that are constantly changing and metamorphosing. And, you know, that is the, you know, one profound vision of America, that America is the place you go to become the person that you want to be, at least for a short period of time. And Lenin is such a profound American in that sense and was constantly shifting and didn't, you know, he could disagree with the government, but it didn't mean he disagreed with the the concept or the project of America. And that's also worth thinking about. You know, he's got songs now that, you know, were in the name of feminism, you know, the, the, obviously the one woman is the N-word of the world, yeah. which is on his greatest hits record, Shaved Fish, which came out in 75, I think. He can't even really be played anymore. It is a fantastic attempt to expand, you know, you know, equality and things like that. But this is the type of person he was like stumbling, I think, always in the right direction and really having a profound difference, like everywhere he went, it's like, I think more people felt like, okay, well, I'm going to try and do my own thing. And that's right. That can be, you know, that, that has to be appreciated at the highest level. I agree with that. Now I want to end on this because we were talking about Lenin and politics, his embrace of radical politics. And he was into, into it. But I think that Rundgren has a point like Lenin was not a joiner. And in his famous song revolution, he he says, you can count me out in So he's deliberately yeah. ambiguous. If you're talking about, you know, violence, if you're talking about blowing things up. If you're talking up, about, if yeah. you're carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you go, yeah. okay, that sounds yeah. like, yeah. sounds like a, a, almost a neoconservative sentiment. Yeah. And yet, I think he's an inc- incrementalist. Um, well, there you go. It's interesting yeah. because it's like at the height of Lenin's radicalism is this, I think, rev- I consider revolution largely as a kind of almost counter-revolutionary song. Yeah. No, it's, it's kind of or repressive tolerance or something like that. Yeah. It, it gives the impression of pushback against the system that has already incorporated whatever utopian you know, possibilities the Beatles represented. It's already incorporated it and is selling it at a profit back to, you know, stupid. Right. Shares. Or like the lesser known song we talked about earlier, Sexy Sadie, is yeah. this evisceration of the Maharaji and everything right. like that. But then you can go find other things that Lenin does before then. Yeah. That's very much like, you know, kind of getting in tune with like, you know, these Indian spirituality and things like that. He's somebody who is just and all great artists are like this. He's restless. Yeah. He's constantly moving on to certain kinds of things. I'm not going to say that you can claim him. I mean, like he I mean, Dylan is famously like this, too. Yeah. We've talked about this before, but his great period where he's a born again Christian. Totally. Total left turn for him. Yeah. But it's a testament to the fact. As you said earlier, he's a seeker. He's a mm-hmm. he's constantly trying to find something new. He's always and, on the road. You know, he's heading right. for the but heading for the other road or whatever. Yeah. And in some ways that does make him a great artist. And it's not to take again, I don't want to yeah. make this seem like and you know, and McCartney is just banal, but McCartney's message has remained the same for sixty years. Yeah. All you need is love. Right. And Ringo been, has a has a version yeah. of that. Peace and love, peace and love. Yeah, peace yeah. like oh great. You think that people would have had enough of yeah. silly love songs? I look yeah. around, and I say it isn't so. <laughs> love, 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 love. Yeah. Ebony and Ivory. It's all right. like 
positive vibes, you know, and he's a great guy. He's a vegan yeah. and everything like that. But like Lennon gives us in his in his work and his in his yeah. career, it is over so much. It's there's he's exploring so many different things all the time. And that's, I think, why he is worth thinking about and, and listening to and considering even now, yeah. you know, I think he's more than also, 40 years after he was murdered. Yeah. Yeah. It's also he's he's I don't you know, cautionary tale isn't quite the right word, but one of the things is he's a constant reminder of and and this is something I think rock music does really well because most great rock musicians either burn out and you know start sucking you know when you think yeah. of people like Elton John or even David Bowie or Bruce Springsteen you but know Bowie, you can quibble hold on wait a second slow down slow your roll there okay David Bowie ends his life with Lazarus I mean that Bowie started. brought it back those are great yeah. records no doubt. I know but he had many many years in the wilderness sure okay and okay. and I guess let's I, leave Bowie out of it. You know, my main point is that somebody like Elton John, who was indescribably great and creative, that is the smallest part of his career. You know, it's like a yeah. seven year or 10 year period, if you're being kind. Springsteen is like that. Nobody's pretending that like the new stuff is, you know, is up to the level of the earlier stuff or the better stuff, yeah. which was compressed. But, you know, rock stars tend to either burn out creatively or they kill themselves or in Lennon, you know, super rare case is killed. But they are reminders like, you know, it's do as they, you know, do as they say, not as they do what, you know, and this is the joke about the Velvet Underground that, you know, nobody, you know, uh, nobody bought the record, but everybody who did, you know, started their own band. Right. right. When you see the Ramones, you realize you can start your own band and do your own thing. And I think Lennon is a particularly good example of that. Like, you know, his own philosophy is inconsistent. It's weird. It's kind of. It's uneducated. It's like maleducated. He would have benefited from having a more systematic thought process. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he wouldn't have been as creative, but what he does is it's like he makes it seem possible that you too can kind of come up with with a story in your life or, or the things that you want to do. And I, I think that's huge. Yeah, I see what you're saying, which is that, you know, yes, he's one of the first rock stars, but he isn't this yeah. inaccessible larger yeah. than life figure he isn't yeah. robert plant or like you know right I mean? he's he, not removed he's not christ right. on calvary you know up on the crucifix where he's inspiring and he's going to save us but you yeah. can't get to him he's remote lennon kind of walked among us and i mean you know that's kind of fascinating it, it is almost amazing to think you know how he was shot i mean the ease with which that happened because he, you know, he just walked around New York City all the time. And Mark David Chapman was able to, you know, like he knew exactly where to find him and things like that. Um, it is you know, he, that you're right that it was he right. We, we, there's we no entourage. Even imagine it today. You know, yeah. I mean, like Beyonce. Somebody of his celebrity would have never been able yeah. to. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, when you, you think get of. To them. Yeah. You know, and it's it's kind of amazing. Right. Well, Nick, this was a lot of fun. I could talk to you for hours on anything. Hmm. For the next time I have Nick on, we are going to do three hours on the Doobie Brothers. The we the will music let is just the doctor. Yeah, the music is the doctor. Yeah, and if we just listen to the music, everything would be all right. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is what of well, you know, yeah. Well, let's talk about the Doobie Brothers sometime. I don't think Lennon a was a fan line. of the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, it's fine. Lennon liked the B fifty twos before he died. Yeah. This one interview I dug up. All right. Nick, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eli. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, 
please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 